to another episode of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Adele Bates. And I tell you what, it is a cracker of an episode. But just before we dive into it, a quick word from our lovely sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast is proudly supported by Cambridge Assessment. Cambridge Assessment comprises of OCR, Cambridge Assessment International Education and Cambridge Assessment English. Here's a good fact for you. They are the oldest exams groups still in existence and the only one attached to a university. Now, Cambridge Assessment International Education operates in more than 10,000 schools in over 160 countries. Why am I telling you all this, I hear you say? Well, because Cambridge Assessment are looking to support their growth by working alongside committed, passionate individuals who share their values and believe in the importance of high-quality education. In other words, the listeners of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast. Now, as an assessment specialist with Cambridge Assessment, you will gain an insight into the teaching and assessment of Cambridge qualifications around the world, including Cambridge IGCSE and Cambridge International AS and A-Level. Examining opportunities fit around their June and November series. Now, being an assessment specialist with Cambridge Assessment comes with training and support and professional development and networking opportunities. It's a freelance opportunity to create extra income with payment per script marked. Marking is online and remote, which gives you the flexibility to fit around your existing home and work-life commitments. Now, aside from the obvious monetary benefits, having been an assessor myself, I reckon there are three other reasons to strongly consider doing something like this. First off, there is the benefit to you as a teacher in being better informed about your subject. I remember whenever I was first marking GCSE, looking through papers and particularly answers is fascinating. Seeing where students go wrong, seeing the stronger answers, seeing what gets marks and what doesn't get marks, it really enhanced my planning going forward. And that feeds on to the second benefit, and that's benefit for the students of people who do this assessment. Because what I'm able to do with increased credibility is say, look, if you write this, this is a really strong answer. If you set your work out like this, you are least likely to make a mistake. You're more likely to pick up those method marks and so on. My kids used to love it when I could actually share proper stories and proper examples from some of the scripts that I've been able to mark. And the third benefit is benefit to your colleagues and the school as a whole. It gives the teacher such a better understanding of mark schemes and how to apply them. We've been lucky enough in the last few years in my school in Bolton to have quite a few assessment specialists within the department. And departmental meetings have never been better because, again, we can share insights about where cohorts of students have gone wrong. And then as a department, we can say, Right, what are we going to do as a team to make sure our students don't fall into that trap? Or how are we going to learn from some of the best scripts that have been answered? And we can only do that because we've got insight from our internal assessment specialists. 
So hopefully that's whet your appetite for at least finding out a little bit more about this exciting opportunity. So for more details and to apply, simply visit cambridgeinternational.org forward slash examiners. That's cambridgeinternational.org forward slash examiners. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes page. And if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out about the packages available. Anyway, back to today's episode with Adele Bates. Now, friend of the podcast, Dr. Helen Williams, recommended I get Adele on the show when we spoke a few months ago. Helen described Adele as simply brilliant, and I'm pleased to say that Dr. Helen Williams was absolutely correct. As you will hear, Adele has had an incredibly varied career, from hip-hop opera singer to one of the country's leading experts on behaviour, having worked in both mainstream and alternative provision centres. In a wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the following things, and plenty more besides. Just why did Adele transition from opera singer to teacher, and what attracts her to the more challenging groups of students? Adele shares her favourite failure and what she learned from the experience. And then we begin our discussion of all things behaviour. Adele shares a great tip for helping teachers to get a sense of the room at the start of a lesson. How might teachers deal with a disruptive child who is hindering the learning of others, whilst at the same time allowing for the root cause of the behaviour? Is the debate between advocates of zero tolerance and those at the other end of the behaviour spectrum really as wide as it may seem? And then something particularly timely. How will behaviour likely have been affected by the pandemic and how might this play out in classrooms when students return en masse? And finally, Adele reflects on something important that she has changed her mind about. Now, I found this conversation incredibly fun, practical and insightful. I think there are nuggets in here, whether you're early on in your teaching career or very experienced. Two things to mention just before we start. First, I just want to give a massive shout out to my Patreon sponsors. Your monthly contributions help pay for the hosting of this podcast and also allow me to treat my wife and son for the hours I spent locked up in my office recording and putting these episodes together. And if you want to know what I've spent my money on this month, I've bought Isaac some lovely new car books because he's a little bit obsessed with every car that goes past him on our walks. And also, as I hope you'll hear this episode, I've also splashed out to improve the sound quality of the interviews. There's no pressure whatsoever at all, but if you did want to support this podcast and my other work that I do for free, you can visit patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths. And there's a link to that in the show notes. Secondly, if you're on the look for a bit of summertime CPD, then I have a series of online courses that are suitable for both maths teachers and non-maths teachers. They're available at craigbarton.podia.com and there'll be a link to all those courses in the show notes. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Adele Bates. It's a conversation I loved all the way through, but especially at the end where Adele shares one of her favourite insults of the week. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side.
Okay, Adele, so we start the show as we always do with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Oh, I think I have to go with 19 because I was born on the 19th of February and I like odd numbers best. Nice, strong start, nice prime number as well there. That's a good, good one. I don't think we had 19 before. I like that one. (laughs) (laughs) And how about your favourite topic in maths as a student, Adele? Quadratic equations. Oh, wow. Okay. Tell me more. Uh, So um, can I tell you my little math story associated with this? Um, Yeah. So I took my math GCSE a year early and there was only about four girls that did. It was mostly lads. And the lads all thought that um, we weren't going to pass and stuff because I was always asking questions. I was that student. I asked a lot of questions. (laughs) And so, and then there were all these lads with their calculators and they used to kind of just like tap on the calculator all the time and I'd be going but what about this what about that how about this and they all assumed that I wasn't going to do very well and I actually came out with a better mark than most of them um, and partly it was the quadratic equation section <laughs> because once I'd asked all those questions to my teacher and he'd explained it it just clicked and I just got it and then I actually in a geeky way kind of enjoyed doing them <laughs> nice well, I mean I mean I love a quadratic as, as much as the next person but what is it about about them that, that grabs you um, I think it's the balancing element. There's probably lots of areas in my life where I could probably put that metaphor. <laughs> it's like I like I like to kind of keep things balanced, and there's a nice balance about quadratic equations. <laughs> yeah, I, I like I like it, and good message about always asking questions when you're unsure. I, I like that. Very good. And um, third speed dating question then for you, Adele. What would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? Uh, I think I would be prime minister. <laughs> Would you be doing a better job than the current one, would you say? Well, (laughs) I would say I don't know because I don't know that job and it would be unfair for me to say that, but I would definitely approach it in a very different way. How about that? A very, very, very politically uh, tuned answer. But as politics, is, is that a serious thing? Has it been something that you'd like to um, be involved in? I really enjoy speaking and motivating people and uh, hence why you end up in teaching. Uh, that side of things, uh, I am involved in my local um, parties and stuff like that. But I think in reality, I would just cry too much. I just cry too much I don't know I feel like with young people and even with teachers and you know when you're training and working with other teachers there's there's a zest for learning there's like a hunger most teachers really enjoy learning that seems to kind of go along with it whereas I'm not sure that goes across into politics completely so I think what I would really like to do so the um the leaders of the Green Party at the moment they I don't know if you know they're co-leading so there's two of them um, so they really want to model like flexi working, part time working. I mean, very much topics that, you know, head teachers are talking about and things. Um, and I think I'd do it that way. I'd have to have a co person if I was going to be prime minister. I'd be co-prime minister. Fantastic. I like it. <laughs> Superb. Well, I'll tell you what, Adele, um, can you talk us through your career to date? Start, start whenever you want and just, just talk us through the kind of ups and downs and all the different roles you've had and how you got to where you are today. Mm, can you give me a... Um... A time limit on this. <laughs> I don't know how to, which version to give you. <laughs> Let's go along. We go along on this show. So, yeah, oh. as long as you need. Okay, cool. Well, my first career, I was an opera singer. And, <laughs> wow. Uh, and I absolutely, I mean, I love doing that. And uh, I had an immersive cabaret operatic act where I sang 
opera songs with hip hop lyrics. And I did a lot of festivals, uh, Edinburgh Festival, Brighton Festival, etc. Uh, lots of cabaret um, events and things. And I absolutely loved doing that. And then there came a point, I did it for eight years, I earned my living, and I even touch wood now out of habit, even though it's in the past, I earned my living as a singer, which is, wow, if, if you know, if you know that world, yeah, it's, it's quite an achievement. And it just got to a point where I wasn't quite sure where it was going, and I didn't know quite what else to do with the act, and I hadn't found the right people to collaborate with. And I had always taught alongside this, so I'd always taught performing arts, that was kind of my way in. And through teaching performing arts, you often get given the young people who are a little bit lively, let's say, <laughs> um, translate as the ones that can't sit still and <laughs> you know, need to scream every so often. And I absolutely loved working with these kids. And it got to this kind of tipping point with my opera career. I'd done a couple of what I call straight operas, as in um, <laughs> not uh, as in kind of non-immersive, non-cabaret, non-hip-hop. It's just kind of yes. what you might think of when you think of opera. And I'd done a couple of those as well. And I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. And the opera industry is very old, very traditionalist in lots of areas. I, there are some contemporary artists working in some cool ways, but not that many. And I just found I was I was actually enjoying spending time with the kids more than I was doing my opera. Um, and so... I'd spent quite a lot of time by that time doing kind of performing artsy stuff in Prus, uh, pupil referral units and alternative provisions. And as I said, I just seemed to have this magnet of all the kind of uh, louder kids who can sit still and, and who needed that kind of really physical stimulation or expression for a lot of them as well. So it got to this tipping point and I just thought, right, I, I'd started working in schools by them. But then there's that funny thing when you're unqualified and you're working peripatetically and all, you know, that kind of thing. And I just thought, right, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do my PGC. I'm going to bite the bullet. Um, now, what was strange is I've been self-employed for eight years up to that point. Mm. And then suddenly, so I'd been my own boss for eight years. And then suddenly I had, <laughs> I think I counted it once in one of the mainstreams. I had like 14 people above me. You know, once you put in your mentor, your professional tutor, your head of department, your four yes. assistant heads, your head. And I just thought, oh, my. and it was it was a real culture shock, actually, a real culture shock uh, going into a school, being told, like, when you can go to the toilet and things. Um, <laughs> but what, even when I started the PGC, I said to them, I really want to work with young people with behavioural needs. And I was advised to get the mainstream experience under my belt first. Uh, which I did, and I did that for a few years, uh, always with this kind of eye to going back to, to the young people that I really enjoyed working with the most. And it kind of came to me anyway. So even when I was working in mainstream, I was often given, you know, insert whatever tag you like, the, the nurture group or the, mm. you know, the, the group that needs support with their behaviour or whichever way around you put it. <laughs> um, I was often given them anyway. And I, I just... I love working with them, um, but I also and can I just sorry, sorry to interrupt mm. it. Can I just I'm trying to get into your mindset here. It's it's really interesting. This I, I work I've worked with lots of teachers who would be, would be similar that they really thrive working with 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 students who present those kind of challenges. Can you just describe well, what what is it that attracts you to to those kind of challenges? Yeah, um, I think that. They make you work really hard um, and they don't lie. And they, I mean, they do lie when they need to. But what I mean by that is if you are not grabbing them with your learning, if you have not adapted your learning correctly for them, if you have not accommodated their needs, they will bloom and tell you where to go. 
And I find, I find it really refreshing, actually. I really like that kind of, I mean, it can be quite honest and quite brutal environment and sometimes quite violent and aggressive. But I love yes. that energy. I love that energy. And actually, what's really interesting, if I go back to my opera career, I mean, I would do stag do's, for example. They were really hard. So I'd do like this stag do gig where I'd be singing around the tables. They'd all be sat there getting absolutely I'm not sure if I'm not drunk. Um, and, <laughs> and I'd be going around the table singing and they'd be heckling and all sorts. And, and actually, it's really similar to, <laughs> to a lot of my teaching now because what it's about with, with these young people, I find, is you really have to meet them where they're at because if you don't, mm. they will react and nine times out of ten negatively. And I, I love that. I love that challenge. I love that challenge of... Um, really needing to understand and spend that time building relationships with young people so that I can adapt my learning so that I can help them move some of the blocks that they've got about learning and education because a lot of these kids do have that and I feel like that that's my task to do that um so yeah I think it's because they keep me on my toes <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what I'll tell you what though I mean so I've obviously I've been taught in just kind of mainstream schools um, mm. for, for most of my career I've, I've, I've had classes where it's been full of students with those kind of challenges but I remember early on in my AST uh, days I got a placement in a pro and I'll tell you what Adele I mean I was knackered I was only in there mm. in the mornings it was um, it was <laughs> once a week one morning a week for six weeks and I would just, by lunchtime, I was sweating. My stress levels were going through the roof. It was exhausting. Do you, do you, not, do you not find it knackering? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but also, I think it's it's different strokes of different folks, isn't it? So I had a fantastic PGCE tutor, and I will name mm. call him because he's helped me a lot, doctor, now he is, uh, Steve Roberts. And he said to us when I was training, he said, don't worry that you might not get every single pupil because all different pupils need all different types of teachers. Mm. We need we need lots of different teachers. We need pe- teachers with different opinions, different approaches to learning, different approaches to education because actually we've got all different types of pupils. So it's funny you say that. When I sit myself in front of a year 10, let's say GCSE English high ability class, yes. I, fi- I find it really hard work. It's not, mm. it's not my thing. It's not, I can do, probably similar to you, I can do it because yes. I've been trained and, you know, we're trained to, to teach quite a wide range of students, but it's not my thing. And I get almost more frustrated and exhausted with that than I do working in uh, special schools or within mainstream schools with, with children with behaviour issues. I think we, we've all got our different niches and, I mean, that's important and that's exciting and that's, that's kind of really thriving from our strengths as teachers. I think that's a really um, useful thing, actually. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And I'll tell you what, Adele, I'm going to come in with a big question here. I, I normally yeah. kind of save them up for, for later on, but but I, this feels like the right time to ask this. And we've had guests on in the past. So, so Dylan William will be an example of this where we, we've talked about how teachers have different strengths for different areas or types of students and so on. So you, you'll get you'll get teachers who are particularly gifted at teaching higher attaining students and you'll get teachers who are particularly gifted at teaching lower attaining students and so on. I'm just putting behavior aside um, for a second. Yeah. Now, what, what tends to happen in, in most of the schools that I've worked in is that you get a mixed bag each year. So when the timetable comes out, heads of department tend to try and mix it up. You get, a, you, you get a year seven on your timetable, you get a top 
set year nine, maybe you'll get a bottom set year 10 and so on. This notion that it's it's fair to mix it around. Mm. Whereas actually, is the argument not that, that if teachers can specialise and teach to their strengths, that it, it's better as a whole for, for, for students? What's your take on that, Adele? Perhaps with this, with the behaviour slant in there, is, is, is it beneficial to mix things around, um, to give teachers different experiences of all different types of students? Or or should, should we be looking to specialise within departments? I think we ask the teachers uh, because at some points in your career, you want a challenge and you really mm. want to um, hone your skills in an area that you're perhaps not so good at. Whereas at other points in your career, um, you actually just need a bit of a, <laughs> I want to say easier life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I mean is it, it, there are some points in your career because of what's going on outside your career, say in your personal yes. life, that actually you need to be able to just go to work, do what you're good at and come back again. And sometimes that's really important. And actually, even whilst you're doing that, you'll be um, inspiring other teachers because they'll look at you as, as an expert in that area and they can learn from you and you can do that kind mm. of thing. And some points in your career, you really want to, to try different things. So I think the answer is um, you, we communicate with each other and we ask, we ask okay, what, what are you foreseeing for yourself and your career right now? Uh, is there anything that you'd like to balance with your home personal life at the moment? Um, and, and seeing what's suitable for each teacher. Yeah, sensible advice. It's, it's just interesting because I always assumed the default was, yeah, you give teachers this wide variety of experience every single year, but it's, yeah, it's, it's worth considering that that mm. might not always be the best thing for the teacher or um, or for the students. And I apologise, I've derailed you midway through <laughs> you telling us about your career. So uh, do you want to pick up where, where you left off, if that's Yes, right? I will, yes. So I spent some time in mainstream. Uh, as I said, I, I was uh, kind of always attracting these particular pupils anyway. <laughs> I must have it written on my forehead. Um, and and then I got to a point which I kind of knew would happen. Having been uh, freelance before going into teaching, it was always going to be a massive culture shock for me to do that um, full time. And then I got mm. to a stage where I, I really started to um, feel that I needed to, as well as being with the pupils and teaching them, that I needed to, as my mum says, start banging me drum. And she says, you're always banging your drum about something. Uh, But in this particular area of my career, it's about those young people. It's about those young people with the behavioural needs, the ones with SEMH, so social, emotional, mental health issues, the ones who have experienced trauma, abuse, neglect, mental health issues. For me, they are a group of young people who are, on the whole, quite misunderstood. And I don't believe from what I've seen so far that our British education system is meeting their needs. And I'm talking on a wide scale here. There are mm. individual teachers who are doing phenomenal work. Um, but on a on a wide scale, that is not happening. And because I also, as well as teaching, because I know I have a skill to be able to communicate and stand in front of audiences and train and teach, I felt then that I needed to step into a position where I could have a mixture. And so that's where I am now. So when people ask me what a behaviour and education specialist is, <laughs> I say, well, for me right now, it happens to be. So I work specifically in one school, a special SEMH school, and I work directly with the children there. And I'm doing reading intervention with them. And then the rest of the time, I am doing the ba- the drum banging. So <laughs> I am, I'm leading training, conferences, articles. I'm writing a book at the moment with Sage Education, and the title of that book is Miss I Don't Give a Shit, 
Um, <laughs> good. That is good. Thank you. Which kind of says what it does in the tin. It will. It's uh, a behaviour guide, and often I find the spaces that I'm talking to are around mainstream teachers who, and this really excites me, Craig, is that so many mainstream teachers want to know more. They want mm. to know about trauma-informed practice. They want to know about attachment issues. They want to know how to differentiate for SEMH pupils. I'm really excited by our profession. You know, This is what I mean about teachers learning. Every single training I lead or conference that I speak at or keynote that I do, people are really excited by what I'm sharing. And mm. so I really see my role, and I'm not, I'm not the only one doing it by any means, but I see my role as a bridge between the kind of teaching practice that's happening in PRUs, in alternative provisions, and the link to that mainstream, because there's some great practice going on in some of those alternative provisions that I believe if, if we could adopt in mainstream sooner, there'd be a lot fewer students being excluded. And vice versa. So often in a PRU or an AP, you're so busy meeting the uh, social, emotional, mental health needs and behavioural needs of young people. It's important that we also keep the focus on the academia. And some of those young people, yes, they might have, um, you know, for example, a child might might be in care. They might not have been able to stay with their biological parents for whatever reason. They might have missed school through their fault, maybe not through their fault. They might have been abused. You know, all these kind of things could happen. That doesn't mean they're not intelligent. That doesn't mean they don't have academic ability. And and so this is why I really feel that the conversation between mainstream and pros and APs, if we could, if we could, if we could really increase that communication, we could do some fantastic shared practice. Like you were saying yourself, you've got that opportunity to go to that, uh, sorry, it was AP or PRU. PRU, yeah. Prue. And I mean, I can just imagine, I want to ask you now, What I mean, what did you get from that? What did you get from being in that different environment? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I was just thinking as you're saying that, um, it, it goes to even just, this is why I love visiting primary schools or when our kind of mutual friend, Ellen Williams was on the show talking about early years. Whenever you speak to somebody who specializes in a certain area, even if your current role just takes a, a tiny percent of that area, you can really enhance your own practice. So whenever I visited that pre, apart from being knackered, it was some, <laughs> some, of, the best, some of the best teaching I'd ever seen because just the, the calmness of the teacher were really really struck me that that was one of the things the, the fact that they like if, if a kid was messing around I was I mean I was I was pretty pretty young and inexperienced at the time but it, but I was if a kid was messing around I was straight in there having a go what are you doing what are you do and it just escalated the situation but the the calmness that they had and you, you needed it and I remember I don't think I've ever mentioned this on the on, on the podcast I'll never forget this um I went in there so how old must I be I must have only been like 25 26 I thought I knew it all I was a young young AST I thought I'm going in this brew to teach you know the teachers how to teach maths better and so on and so forth I thought I'll show them a thing or two here and I stood, <laughs> I stood at the door and it's this year nine class coming in and I'd always been taught that you greet the kids as you come in so I was stood at the door and as these kids were walking past I was saying hello my name's Mr Barton the first two or three are just literally ignoring me then this one lad comes up and I said hello I'm Mr Barton and he just looked at me and he said you look like a prick. And I thought, right, okay, all right. That's, that's going to set the tone. I thought, I'm out of my depth here. I am out of my depth here. So yeah, I learned so much from that. So mm-hmm. much from that placement. It's And there's not enough of it, is there, Adele? This no. kind of, as teachers, we tend to get kind of fixed in our little bubble. If we teach secondary mainstream, that's who we hang around with. If we teach primary mainstream, I don't think there's enough kind of, you know, transition with primary teachers learning from secondary teachers yes. and vice versa. Yes. But also, I'd, 
since that day, I've never been in a pre since. And that was, you know, 12, 15 years ago or something. It's yeah, scary, it is. isn't it? It is. And then especially if you think, I mean, there are some pupils who go from pre and they do come back into mainstream. Mm. And I think as mainstream teachers, we need to know where they've come from because yes. different, this is something I've been writing about in my book actually a lot at the moment, the different environments require different behavioural rules. And if we don't know what the rules are, it might come across that we're being badly behaved. But in fact, we're just we're just working to a different set of rules. So mm. the really I mean, an example that I would give just because quite relevant to my life um, is I announced my engagement um, to my partner, my fiance, and she's also a woman. So in the UK, that is a celebrated act. Right. And whereas in another country, um, you could get put into prison and have the death penalty. Yes. Now, the behavior is exactly the same, but the context is different. Now, that's that's like a wide picture um, mm. kind of example. So taking that back into the classroom, I mean, we know that ourselves, especially in secondary, that different teachers require different expectations in different classrooms. Now, when you're an SEMH pupil, that can be quite confusing sometimes. They can find that quite challenging. I mean, if you think you've got your six period day. And like you said, Mr. Barton requires it like this and Miss Page requires it like that and blah, blah, blah. And, and sometimes that it's not that they are sitting there going, I'm going to be badly behaved and disrupt this lesson. But it's that they're not recognizing that, oh, yes, I'm in that environment where these expectations mm. are needed. And that could be very, very different from home life. We have yes. young people um, who, I mean, I work a lot with students who have safeguarding issues, who have child protection issues, who are known by local authorities, and their home lives are not particularly stable. And so when they transition to school, it's something um, that we work on a lot in pre's and APs, is this transition. We talk a lot about transition. I mean, you talked about from primary to secondary. What we talk about a lot is even just from home to school, because if at home there's um, negative things going on, maybe unsafe or violent or we have some young people who for example their parents are really terminally ill in hospital and so they're having to fend for themselves at home they're having to feed themselves they're having to do their own shopping etc if you're coming from that environment then you're coming into school where someone's telling you to sit down be quiet and get on with your work you can see how that's that's really a different um, way of being it's a different set of expectations and behavior rules and I think that that transition and us communicating that. I mean, when when people say to me, "How did how do you differentiate for SEMH?" I think that that's a really useful thing of of just reiterating expectations and letting really mm. communicating, letting them know because it might take them longer than pupils who come from a home life that's perhaps more similar to the kind of expectations behaviourally in schools. So that can be quite a useful um, tip there to just kind of look at your transitions and make sure you are communicating those expectations as much as you can. That's fascinating. We're flipping Ekadel. I can see we're going to go deep on this. this I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm learning already. This is, this is amazing. Um, be, before we, before we um, kind of revisit um, working with these students and, and the behaviour issues, um, a question I always ask my guests at this stage is just to describe a favourite failure. And this, could be, this could be anything. It could be from, from your teaching, your professional life or anything, but I'm looking for something that didn't go according to plan yeah. and crucially what you learned from the experience. Yeah, okay. This is... <laughs> Such a good question. This might be one of my favourite questions I've been asked on a podcast so far. You know, nice. <laughs> so I was in a primary school 
which is unusual for me anyway, but I was in a primary school and uh, I was teaching performing arts and myself and a colleague, we were teaching the jive, as in the right, 1950s okay. jive, uh, to year five. Now, because we were kind of visiting teachers at this stage, um, they'd, they'd lumped all of year five together. So I think we had over 90 year fives in the hall and I was teaching Flipping them the jive. <laughs> and um, now this was back in the, it's funny how you say you're looking back when you were younger. I mean, I was probably in my um, mid twenties at this point. And, you know, I was a very different teacher then as well. <laughs> I was a lot more black and white and a lot more um, yep, yep. <laughs> kind of, why are we not doing it like this? Anyway, so I was trying to um, crowd control slash teach this jive. Uh, to these 90 pupils and this young boy came up to me and he went oh I miss my legs hurting I can't do it and I said <laughs> and I had no um, I had no sympathy I was <laughs> and I just went go and get on with it you know don't be silly go and get on with it so he went and got on with it and then about 10 minutes later he came up to me again and he said miss my, my legs really hurting and the thing is a lot of the kids do this as an excuse when you present yes. the jive to them and especially I was demonstrating that at the time when the drive was popular, it would have been um, fashionable for them mainly to dance with opposite sex partners. So I was kind of introducing that as a kind of historical context point of like, let's have the boys this side, the girls this side, you can dance together. Um, you know, very much as like, because this is how it would have been. And then I did give them an opportunity to uh, mix with different genders. But at that point, I was trying to make this historical point about it. Yes. So <laughs> when I did that, there was a lot of kickback. So I just thought this, I just thought this kid was just, you know, trying it. He came mm. up to me a third time. And, told oh, me no. <laughs> and in the end, I got quite cross and like, oh my goodness. It's like you say, Craig, looking back to your, <laughs> to your mid-twenties when you thought you knew it all. And I was kind yes. of going, no, oh, you just need to get on with it. Stop with these excuses. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then about 10 minutes after that, um, a colleague who was working with me at the time, very <laughs> subtly, came up to me and said, Adele, um, that kid's broken his leg. Oh, no. And oh, it no. only came out of the cast two days ago. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, God. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. You know, I'd like re like bunched his leg I don't know oh. so I was like oh my goodness what do I do so I said anyway so I sent them all off dancing and I went straight to him and this is the <laughs> learning point because I had to apologize because I hadn't listened I had not listened I had reacted to his behavior and I had not like I had not spent the time to find out why mm. um which is something I really uh, ironically that's something I really advocate for now um I'm doing a a TEDx talk. Uh, it's due this year, so it's been postponed, obviously, but whenever it comes again. And the title of that is See the Child, Not the Behaviour. So that's, yes. it's such a strong belief of mine. Maybe it came from this moment. Yes. But I had to go up to this kid and I had to apologise. I mean, what else could I do at that point? So I sat down and I said, I'm really sorry. First of all, is your leg okay? <laughs> you're yeah. falling off. I said, I said, but secondly, I need to apologise to you because I didn't listen to you and I didn't believe you. And that was wrong. Like I, I totally shouldn't have done that. Um, and luckily, he he was a nice kid, and he kind of he kind of laughed at me, and I, I let him. I can't remember. I gave him some inane task about I don't know, <laughs> looking at the jar. I don't know. I can't remember what again. But um, but I felt so bad afterwards. But it just taught me that if you go in like as my nan used to say, like a bullet a gate. 
with no room for maneuver, with this kind of zero tolerance attitude. I mean, that's essentially what I was doing at that point was we will all earn the drive. Um, if you go in with that, there's a massive danger. I mean, in this case, really like a physical danger that he could have done something to his leg. Um, but yes. now I use that in my own teaching as in, okay, if the kid walks in, chucks the desk over and swears at me, yes, there's a behavioral thing there. It needs a consequence. And I'm not saying it does. Uh, it doesn't. Um, but I need to I need to use this same method. I need to ask why I need to find out why, because if I don't, if I just punish the behavior, it's going to happen again because I haven't got to the root of it. I don't really mm. know what's going on. And and so that's that that's kind of really taught me that. And I that hasn't been the last time I've had to apologize to a student. Um, I had to do it. Um, so I've had to do it in several times afterwards. But the power of it is quite incredible because I think young people don't expect their teachers to apologize to them. Uh, and when you do it, and, and it's real because you know you've done something wrong, um, I think they get that, and the respect really grows, I think, mutually. I think it's, it's a massive learning point. It was a massive teaching point for me. That, that's a brilliant example, Adele. There's two things I want to pick up on there. And first is, is the the, the apologising. I think that's fascinating. I've done that a couple of times mm. um, for, for various reasons with, with students. It's one of those things that instinctively well certainly for me it felt like when I was thinking about it I thought this doesn't it feels like the wrong thing to do here like I'm a teacher I shouldn't be apologizing to a child blah 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 but then as a if you put aside the fact you're a teacher and this is your student of of course if you're wrong you know you're going to apologize it's it's the right thing to do and it, what really struck me is, is I mean, this was with a, a particular, well, the first example I'm thinking of was, was with a particularly difficult child that I had a quite a difficult relationship with. And it was a bit of a game changer in terms of our relationship going forward, yes. um, because I, I think I'd, I got the impression that perhaps not many people had apologized to this this child before, so certainly perhaps not teachers in, in, in this particular school I'm, I'm thinking about. And it wasn't an easy conversation to have, and it wasn't as if overnight all of a sudden they're, a, they're an angel or anything, but it, yeah. it was a positive step in our relationship going forward. And I, I think it was something that I'd never considered really doing before. And I'm not saying I do it all, all the time now, left, right, and center, but in those circumstances where I'm definitely in the wrong, it's, yeah, yeah it's an important thing to do, isn't it, Adele? Definitely, definitely. I think... I did it um, once, it was about, I think about a year ago, I was, I think I was covering a lesson, you know, <laughs> you know, when you're covering a lesson and it's not your lesson and you're you yes. supposed to be doing PPA and all the rest of it. So it was a class I didn't know. And there was a young girl, I think it was kind of year 10, 11. And she was at one point, I think she was trying, from my point of view, it seemed like she was trying to interrupt me whilst I was giving out instructions. Mm. And then I'd seen that she'd moved to sit next to her boyfriend. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, <laughs> I've, got, I've, go, yeah. I've got the cure your jib. I know what's going on here. And so I, I stopped her. I silenced her. I said, you need to wait. I'm doing, you know, I'm giving the instruction. And I could see it really massively riled her. Um, and, she, and I thought, oh gosh, she's going to explode. Uh, it turns out later I found out she was one of the pupils who um, had various needs. But of course, when you're covering and you've just been sent in like five minutes before, you haven't got time to look at that um, data, have you? Yes. <laughs> anything. Um, and but I could see she was getting more and more angry, and I thought, okay, the and this this again goes with STMH pupils. Her reaction, from my point of view, seemed disproportionate to the to the 
the instruction I'd given her. So all I'd said was, let me finish the instruction. And this had clearly triggered something. Mm. Um, and again, this can this can be quite common with young people with behavioural needs, is that that reaction seems disproportionate. And it turned out, um, so yeah, she was, she was um, getting more and more irate, more and more irate. And I thought, if I don't deal with this, this is going to completely explode and, and stop the whole lesson. So I just went over to her really quietly and said, I'm just going to get everybody set on their work. And then I'd really like to talk to you. And that seemed to kind of appease her temporarily. Mm. So I did that. I got the class going and I took her outside and I said, I'm really sorry. I can see I've really, really upset you. That wasn't my intention. I just wanted I just wanted to get these instructions out, you know, cover lesson. This is what you need to do. Um, and it turned out that she said she I'd just been the straw on the camel's back. She said she felt that she often got silenced by teachers and adults in general. And she was really, really upset by it. And um, I was able to kind of just unpick for her. And this is, again, see the child, not the behavior, is that I was able to unpick for her that um, that actually what had happened wasn't actually that bad or, or anything, but but not that her reaction was wrong. Like her reaction was totally valid because it was a buildup of loads of things that I didn't know. And how could I know? Mm, I yes, was just covering. Yes. And then I think what really, um, I really came away from that thinking as well. Like she had a really um, strong ability in debating. Now, whether it was always in the right way, you know what I'm talking about, these particular pupils. <laughs> They're very yes, good at debating, yeah. but not yeah, necessarily yeah. about the effects of World War II, but like <laughs> <laughs> debating. And I stepped away from that lesson and I thought, you know what I've done that I really think I advocate for, but clearly I'm not always practicing, is that I've done quite a lot of work of looking at, about inclusion and soundscapes around um, gender. And there is still... Um, in lots of the work that I've done, this effect where the, the male voice is stronger in a classroom. And I looked at her and I thought, ah, oh, you know, here is a young woman who is able to debate very intelligently, um, using really strong arguments. And, and I thought, oh, no, like I've, I've kind of squished that somehow in that moment. Mm. Um, and it's hard as teachers because if we overanalyze everything, you know, we've wrecked everybody's life and um, <laughs> we, we should never move again. But luckily, I had a chance to go uh, and see her at another point and, and actually say to her, just, just actually highlight for her her strengths. You're really good at debating. You're really good at putting a point across very succinctly and very powerfully and very passionately. And I said to her, do you know there are jobs that require those skills? You know, and then we had that kind of conversation and then we talked mm. about politicians. Um, <laughs> but again, it all comes from my taking that time, I think, to um, apologise to her and find out why the behaviour had happened or was about to happen. Luckily, I caught it just about in time. But um, it, again, it's about scratching under that surface. Why? Why is this happening and how can I adapt for it? And because I did adapt, it was fine. The rest of the lesson, she got on fine. So... It works. It's, 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 it's fascinating, isn't it, Adele? It's the, the more I th the more I speak to people, and the more I think about this, the harder teaching gets as a, yes. as, a, as a job or a profession. Because like you focus, I, I used to think in my early days, the focus was kind of on my subject knowledge, like make sure I know my maths inside out. And then the more I started reading about kind of cognitive science and mm -hmm. retrieval and stuff, I thought, right, okay, well, now I've got to account for students' short-term memory and long-term memory. I've got to build this retrieval schedule. And then the, the then you speak to people like yourself or, or even, and this is an interesting one, I, I mentioned Dylan William before, um, 
my, my first interview with Dylan was one of, one of the most popular um, that, that we've ever done. But a lot of the focus from people's takeaways on like when he talks about formative assessment and Bjork's work and so on. But actually, one of the biggest points Dylan makes there is that teaching is a relationships business. And if you don't know your kids, the rest of the stuff kind of goes out the window a little bit because you're never going to have that connection to get through to them, to you know teach them the thing that you want to teach them. And they're not going to be as... Re- taking on as much as, as you want them to. So like, it's so hard though, isn't it? Because you, you've got to make this conscious effort to, to get to know your students and the, their background as much as you can. And as you say, if you chucked into a cover lesson, it's hard, but at the start of the year, when you get a new class, it's difficult. When a new student joins, it's difficult. Well, how can teachers kind of, is there any way to kind of fast track this getting to know your kids a bit better? And, and do you agree that relationships are, are one of the keys to teaching Adele? Yes, I mean, absolutely. It's one of the fundamental blocks of my book. Um, if, you, if you could be given another tagline, it's bother to make a relationship. Um, yes. and so the, there's a couple of ways, I, a couple of points I, th- I thought about that, that where you were just saying, and then do tell me if I don't answer the question. Sure. <laughs> so I took a conscious decision when I left working in full-time mainstream. There are some people who get really excited, I'm going to use a metaphor here, for getting people into space and landing on the moon, right? So for me, that's like human at its most kind of extended. Us being on the moon for me is like, whoa, that's a really kind of extreme thing. <laughs> now, some t- and, and in the same way, some teachers are really into um, pure subject knowledge and really passing that on to students so that those students can be the best at that subject. And, mm. and I see that very much as like taking people to the moon. Whereas what I'm more interested in and what makes me really excited and passionate is giving everybody on earth water and food. To me, that's more important. So if we can... Well, that's interesting. I so, like that. That's interesting. So for me, when I look at that class of pupils, because sometimes, let's be honest, if we've got, I mean, sometimes I taught 36, you know, teach 36 pupils in a class in a mainstream comp. You with the best one in the world in 57 minutes or whatever you've got are not going to bring every single student to be an A student in your subject. It just doesn't work like that. And there are some teachers who will really concentrate on the top end and be really excited about bringing their, you know, that, as I said, that pure kind of subject knowledge. For Mm, me, I'm mm. more, I'm really excited by the ones who don't, who struggle to pick up a pen And, Mm. and back into that metaphor. I'm not that bothered if we get to the moon or not. I admire it. It's not my thing. I'm more bothered that everybody on my planet has the basics and has their fundamental basic human rights. And if we think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I, and I take that to my classroom and, and the community that I create within my classrooms as well. So I I find that um, I just notice it more. I think, again, we're talking about different teachers with different skill sets. Um, and then going back to Dylan's form, formative assessment, I use that within this this kind of approach because um for example when that young girl was about to explode I needed to check in with her (laughs) you know Mm, and okay okay I wasn't doing a formative assessment in terms of checking in with her learning at that point but I was checking in with any obstacles she had to learning and if I hadn't have checked in at that point with her obstacle to learning which was she was really angry at me (laughs) if I hadn't checked in with her at that point and recognized it and named it and given her the space to have that anger then she wouldn't have learned anything that lesson Mm, did I answer the question 
It does. <laughs> I, I just want to just I just want to probe a bit deeper because I'm, I'm thinking like people are going to be listening to so that this episode is going to come out sometime in July 2020. People are going to be listening um, in the UK on their summer holidays. Perhaps they're going to be listening to this um, in the build up to the new academic year. Now, obviously, this is a, a very very strange time. We, we we don't really know what September's going to look like in terms of pupils in our class. What what the new what what, what school's going to look like? Full stop. But I just wonder, Adele. And this could be true for any September, but but thinking in particular about this one, is there any advice you'd give to teachers to to kind of fast track this this relationship thing to get to know their students so that you, we don't have this situation where we we have the girl that you've described there, how you, you know if you were better informed, if you knew a bit about her background, the day kind of day she'd had, and so on and so forth, that that situation would have played out a bit differently. And I think of some of the many mistakes I've made in the past because I've essentially treated every child the same whenever, you know, actually they've, they've got very different needs and very different circumstances. Well, what would you advise teachers to do listening to this? Perhaps a bit anxious about meeting a class for, for, mm-hmm. for the first time, particularly in, in this current climate. Well, what are some of the practical things teachers can do, if that makes any sense? Yes, definitely. And thank you for looping back round to that. That's something <laughs> that's something I write about a lot so um, I'll go into a couple of examples now but if you do want more information on that a lot of my blogs center around that kind of uh, approach so I have I think I actually have a blog that's called getting to know you Uh, three points if you guess the musical correctly Um, (laughs) you get the musical reference Um, and uh, I have establishing relationships quickly with the children that you don't know because that's been happening a lot during transition and mm, lockdown and things yes. like that so I do have quite a lot on there if people want um, to read up on that my website is over at adelbateseducation.co.uk um, so to answer that now oh, it's, oh I love talking about this <laughs> so it's um it's there I've been writing about actually last week in my in my book which is it's making the space for regular check-ins and that can look very different in lots of different settings. I'm going to stick to mainstream now because obviously mm. most, you know, most teachers are going to be in mainstream settings, but you can see how you can adapt that. So a really, really, really simple one is the register. I don't need to hear yes, miss 34 times. Uh, that does not <laughs> help me or them, apart from obviously the, the safeguarding, are they in the room thing? So A very simple thing I do at the start of my lessons is instead of saying yes, miss, they give me one word to explain how they feel that day. And most of the time it's bored, 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 tired, bored, bored, (laughs) bored, tired, tired, tired. (laughs) Fine. But within two minutes of taking the register, I've done um, a litmus test, a sensory test of just, okay, what's going on? Has there been a fight at lunchtime? Because if there's been a fight at lunchtime, those responses are, oh, like, Oh, I'm quite pumped, Miss. <laughs> you know? Yes. Or, yes. or um, oh gosh, I'm a bit nervous. Or if exams are coming up, you'll get a very different set of answers. And mm. as you, and even just using that very small check-in tool, just with a register, if you're doing that with a class regularly on repeat, you will start to learn when uh, things are kind of normal and okay, and when actually there's something going on, and you need to start adapting your learning. And I just love using that because it doesn't take any extra time or any extra planning. 
that's brilliant that's that's brilliant i i I love it and i'm guessing it's one of those things that the the more you do it with with the class the kind of the the more open they are in kind of kind of sharing how they're feeling i'm guessing the first time you do it you are you you can imagine a bit of a kind of a cluster to the mean the kids are just going to say whatever the two or three kids before them have said but Mm -hmm. the more you do it and the more they get to know you i imagine that this could yeah this could be incredibly useful in terms of getting a sense of how the class is feeling exactly and i think especially when pressure points are coming I mean I'm thinking Mm. secondary school exams that kind of thing especially thinking about us going back now I mean we really don't know what we're going back to yet and those kind of check-in tools and approaches are going to be so important it does scare me a little bit I feel like the rhetoric coming from the government in the UK right now is a bit let's go back and carry on Um, I believe that we will have kickback from that uh possibly from teachers themselves as well as pupils because i i believe that if we have gone through something um a big change let's just say and we've all experienced it in different ways um then it, we are affected by that and if we just try and go back to normal it's 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 gonna jar something's gonna go wrong and mm. i did a talk recently for you know the Bruhead people on Twitter. Yes. Yeah, I did the global Bruhead isolation, which was very fun. And my talk there was safety and well-being first, learning second. Because unless the kids, the pupils feel safe and comfortable, they're not going to be able to learn. And so, mm. going back to techniques we could use to do this, we need to be building in um, space and time for those kind of moments of actually, Miss, I'm not okay. Um, and we need that for our staff as well. And I think as people are looking to their curriculums for September and looking at how you know we're going to build back up to the curriculum and things, I'm particularly thinking, of, I keep thinking of year 10. I'm worried about year 10. Actually, yes. Because yes. they've just watched their peers go through two years of focusing on what now is only terminal exams, which, I mean, for SEMH pupils can be horrendous, that model. Mm. Please bring up that coursework. Um, but they've just seen their... Um, colleagues the year above them go through two years of everything's about exams it's important to do exams you need to do exams and then the exams just poof disappeared yes now those year tens are going to what be told the same thing mm. knowing what's happened what's happened I, I, we need we need space for uh, discussion to work out this and and also there might be pupils coming from uh, situations so if I think back to some of the SEMH pupils that I've been working with during lockdown some of their home life situations are very, very concerning. There are some, the ones I'm most concerned about are the ones that we didn't hear from. Uh, mm. So I had the classic, like, call them up, F off miss type thing. <laughs> I had a lot of that. I've got a lot of nocturnal students now. Um, but the ones <laughs> I'm most worried about are the ones that we didn't hear from, the ones we yes. didn't hear from, or we didn't even hear from the adults or parents or carers either. We don't know what's been going on in their life. And it could be, you know, there's a possibility that that could be something quite negative and quite serious. Now, if we go in saying, right, now you need to go back to learning your quotes for um, your Dickens text Mm. straight away, I feel like we're doing a massive disservice to these young people. Now, there is a little um, caveat to this, which is for some pupils, the thing that will make them feel safe is that everything's back to normal. Okay. Yes, of course. So just, yes. just the kind routine. Of, exactly, yeah. exactly. So I think what we need to do 
is have a routine definitely because that will make I mean let's face it for some of us adults that'll make us feel safe (laughs) Um, we do need that but we need to know that within that routine it might it might just be on Tuesday afternoon it all goes to pot and that's okay because people need to and children and staff need to deal with things that they've been through yeah that's yeah it's very sensible advice Adele and as you say there there is a danger that we just we we assume that the best thing to do is just to to get back to normality for everybody and it may be for somebody it may not be for for a significant number and I'll tell you what I've got to ask you this now Adele because if if I forget to ask you this I'm going to be really mad at myself later on so let me chuck this into the mix now it's a it's a slight little tangent but it but it kind of works and one of the things I remember that I was always taught um, about behavior as, as a teacher was consistency is the key. Like it, the, if kids, if you're not consistent, the kids absolutely hate it. And I've certainly experienced that, that in the past where I'll, you know, I'll either shout, I'll have shouted at a child for doing something, but then perhaps another child will do the exact same thing and my reaction will be slightly different and so on and so forth. But what, I, what I'm, what, what I always struggle with here is that, that, you can't really be consistent at the same time as kind of responding to the different needs of all the kids. So is, is, is this a balancing act and, and how, how do you get that right? Adele? Does, does that make sense? Is, is consistency, yeah. is, is that the key to behavior or not? Yes. From the other angle, I would say that the key, one of the keys, there's lots of keys, um, mm. but one of the keys you're absolutely spot on is consistency. Um, but I think what's really helpful is rather than thinking of it as consistency with behavior, think of it as consistency with kindness. Okay. So what that would mean in practice is if you are consistently kind and you're a human too, so you're only going to do your best. So just like permission slip there, don't beat yourself up. Um, <laughs> but if you are consistently kind to all of the pupils who come to you slash humans that come to you, then you have that flexibility I was talking about and ability to adapt for different needs and different situations and different behavioral things. Um, but the consistency and the kindness is the key. So if you if you are consistent as in, if a child speaks, they get a detention. Let's say that, you know, that model, if a child speaks during the register, they get a detention. Well, that doesn't really work when somebody's, you know, just whacked themselves and they've got a nosebleed because they did speak yes. during the register. Well, hang on, but your consistency rule says if someone speaks during the register, they need a detention. Are you going to give a kid a detention for getting a nosebleed? You know, so, so that's why thinking of consistency when it comes that way can actually be really restricting and it can really go against your instinct. You, I think you said really insightfully there that it felt wrong to deal with one pupil in one way mm. and, and try and keep it consistent for the sake of consistency. Mm. No. So if we think about it the other way, which is I'm, con- I'm going to be uh, or aim to be consistently kind towards all of my pupils. And then, then you come from a space of, okay, so this kid's, um, speaking during the register because they've got a nosebleed my kindness part of me and my compassion and understanding goes yeah that's really not a reason to give them attention let's send them to the nurse <laughs> you know yes, um, yes and it gives you that space to do that and it's something that Paul Dix talks about a lot as well consistency and kindness as does Hal Roberts um the work of as well Lisa Cherry she's a practitioner who works particularly uh, around working with young people who've experienced trauma and this is what those young people need. They don't need a, a zero tolerant one size fits all because it doesn't work for them because they have had different experiences. And I have to say, I mean, some of the young people that I work with 
When I read their history, their EHCP, so that's their education healthcare plan, I cry because mm. they have experienced the kind of trauma, abuse, neglect that I can't, I'm lucky, I can't imagine. Mm. I haven't had that kind of life. And you know what? If you, if you think about some of the worst things a human being can, can, can do to another human, some of that has happened to my kids before they were five. Mm. And guess what? That affects your behavior a little bit. <laughs> you know? And actually, if you are, and, and I do this sometimes, if, I, if I'm ever struggling with a pupil, because we are all human, we all have at least one that just pushes our buttons. <laughs> um, if I ever find I'm getting to that stage with a pupil where I'm really just getting into that headlock, you know, um, I will go and find out more about that pupil. Because, mm. and, you know, in my, in settings where it's SMH schools, often you will find a very traumatic past. Um, and it might not always be that, you know, there are there are some people who still have SEMH issues and they would have what we would call on paper, perhaps a very, you know, supportive upbringing with very supportive, loving parents. I'm not saying that it, it's always that, but it's taking that time to find out, OK, this kid's pushing my buttons. Why is that? What it, What is it about what they've been through? And also sometimes it's sometimes it's just the combination. I mean, even when you mm. just meet, meet another adult, sometimes you just don't get on with a certain person. <laughs> There's just something in the combination. Um, and and that's okay too. That's why we have lots of teachers and lots of pupils. Okay, can I ask it out? And listen, I'm, I, I always ask the most, the, the daftest questions on here, and forgive me if, if this is kind of a, a really obvious question, but it's, it's something I've struggled with for, for, for many years. That you, you mentioned early on in the conversation that, that students may struggle to adapt to different situations where perhaps the expectations are different, whether that's between home and school or, or one classroom to, to, to the next classroom. Now, if, if kind of making students aware of what the expectations are in terms of behaviour is, is important, which I, I certainly feel that, that, it, that it is important. Again, is, is there some kind of conflict here that it, we've got to make sure students are aware of the expectations, but if some students don't meet those expectations, we've got to try and kind of find out why they're not meeting them and, and how does that kind of play out practically in mm. terms of a lesson to take your kind of extreme mm. example from earlier on that the kid walks in the room they tip the table over they chuck the chair out mm -hmm. like what do we do in that situation versus what do we do if you know the low level disruptions going on and that's one of our kind of our expectations you don't talk when the teacher's talking it, do, do you know what i mean like how, how do we reconcile the two we've got these expectations but we've also got to be attuned to the the different reasons why students may be misbehaving? Mm, that's a really good question. So what are, uh, in trainings that I work with, I often advocate for your three non-negotiables and they mm. are the ones that you stick to and you stick to them 99.999% of the time. <laughs> so it might be the not talking during the register. It might be the mm. you sit in your seating plan. You know, they're really mm. kind of basic things, but you might need yes. to remind them, but you stick with them and you need to stick with them because if you don't, <laughs> <laughs> they know that you're a pushover and mm. you will get called all sorts of names and that's what happens. So I always advocate you have your three non-negotiables and it might take a little bit of time for some of the pupils to learn that. So classic one, I had a year nine class. I don't know what it is about year nines. They always get snogged, <laughs> always snogging in year nine, hormones, <laughs> snogging in year nine. Um, it was a year nine class and for whatever reason, I just wasn't getting them. I wasn't like 
you know what? They weren't on board. They weren't on board. I'd been teaching mm. them for six mm. weeks and I still hadn't quite got them. And they were pushing the boundaries a little bit here and there. And, and it just wasn't, it wasn't good. And we weren't focusing on the learning, which is the most important bit. And so I actually spent two full lessons reinstating the expectations for my classroom. Wow. And arguably you could say, okay, but what's that got to do with Romeo and Juliet, mm. you know, mm. act three, scene two. But because because the culture in the classroom had been kind of growing in a way that wasn't conducive to learning, I think at that point, when we're talking about this balancing act between consistency, expectations and accommodating others, it was almost like I had to um, kind of refresh the culture. And I had to kind of refresh the expectations in the room and, and actually give some of the pupils time to adjust to that as well. And it was boring for them. You know, it was boring go, going out and lining up again and coming in again and lining up again and coming in again. <laughs> they go, Miss, this is boring. Why should you do that? And I said, well, look, if you want to read through this play and you want to get up and act it, I need to know that when myself or another director gives you a stage direction, or we're analyzing a piece of text, I need to know you can do that. If you can't walk in my room quietly or silently, which I can't remember which rule I decided on at that time, <laughs> but if you can't do that, how can I trust you? How do I know that you're gonna be able to be ready for the learning? And then it become becomes a um, it becomes connected to the learning that you're doing, and mm. it, I mean it just so happened that I was doing uh, Romeo and Juliet at the time, and so I was really able to uh, put it together with like being an actor and being disciplined on stage. Mm. Yes, you're expressive as an actor. Yes, you've got space to um, express your personality and the meaning of the text and and everything that's going on. But without the discipline. It doesn't work. Yes. Um, another an, an analogy that works really well with most kids is, is sport. Um, that there there are rules in sport. There are fouls and there are ways to get points. And I'm not a PE teacher, so please step in at any point. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's like you have got to. So when I lead training, I I stick to my I advocate for th your three non-negotiables, and you mm, you lay mm. those out at the start of the year. These are my three non-negotiables, and if anybody dares breathe a hair over those. There is a consequence. And you mentioned earlier when you were in the PRU about how calm everybody seemed. Yes. Um, and that's a really, really good approach because it's not actually, I don't need to sing and dance and shout if a kid needs to stay with me for 10 minutes after a lesson because they talk during the register. I don't need to get angry. There's no point mm. in that. I just waste my energy. Um, and they just switch off and then probably do impressions of me behind my back. Um, <laughs> but, but what I need to do is just say, okay, this is what happened. You did this. You knew the consequence, and now it's the consequence. That's all. That's all needs to happen. Really, really simply. And the great thing is that once you've set up those non-negotiables or those consistent expectations, as as a, as a real consistent in this situation, then you've got your 0.001-ish mm. left for okay. Actually, I can see something's really going on for you today. I can see that this is not the day for us to do this. I can see that you're going through something. Tell me more. Yes. And then you've got the space to do it. But you've got the space to do it with, that, with them still having the boundaries. Boundaries make us feel safe. As humans, we like boundaries. How many um, teachers I've heard during lockdown who, who, who got wobbly? emotionally because they didn't have their routine they didn't have their boundaries yep. they didn't have a boundary between home and school yes and yes you sound like you really you really understand that 
Oh yeah, oh, I had a bit, bit of a breakdown. Yeah, it was. I, I'd, I'd never known anything like it because yeah. you, you didn't know when your working day ended and your your home life started. It's yeah, it's it, and I know from private messages, it's been a big, big challenge for lots of teachers. I think you're yeah. absolutely right, Adele. Yeah, and for SEMH pupils, so imagine. Um, I'm thinking now, particularly the ones with attachment issues, with um, mm. who've been through trauma, boundaries haven't always been in place and so for example uh maybe uh for one student they have been allowed to smoke and drink since the age of eight okay so that is perhaps a boundary that our society you know different in different countries but in our society in the uk Mm. that's kind of we're not okay with that that's the boundary that we've put in place okay fine um but Again, if the, yes, they might be happy that they get to drink and they might think it's really cool or whatever. But in reality, they know that pe- the adults aren't keeping them safe. Adults are not keeping me safe right now. And so I have to keep myself safe. And then I go into survival mode and then I go into mm. fight, flight or freeze mode. And that's what we see in the classroom. So if uh, so, I'm thinking about that classic supply teacher walks in, doesn't know them can't control them for whatever reason and and the nicest pupils turn don't they you must have experienced this right? <laughs> you must have come back after a training day and gone what did you do to that supply teacher you're a really nice class but it's because they don't feel the boundaries they don't feel, and so they push against it and so yes. they push and it's it is a fine balance and i think i totally totally agree with you that the more that i teach the harder it <laughs> now, i don't use the word harder but maybe mm. the more there is to it let's say the more there is to it. Absolutely. And, and as I'm writing my book about it and, and as I'm speaking more and more on podcasts and people are asking me questions and, and I'm leading trainings and people are asking me, sometimes people ask me a question and I just think, I know I should know that answer, but now that you've asked me, I feel like there's 20 possibilities. To yes, <laughs> to yes. To the answer. I mean, I feel like we could have this whole podcast again, same questions, and we it all come from a different angle. Right? <laughs> but that's exciting. Um, that's learning. That's what that's what we are as teachers. That's what we do. You know, I think I think we can embrace that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'll tell you what's running through my mind here, Adele, and I'll be very interested in your take on this. So so as somebody who's on, on Twitter like myself, you, you'll be aware of the kind of big divisions that, that exist within our profession and whether it's kind of explicit instruction versus inquiry and so on. You get people kind of at polar opposites. And whenever you dig a bit deeper into it, that, that perhaps the differences aren't quite as as big as, as may seem on, on first inspection. Did you get the same sense when you hear people talking about zero tolerance? Did you find that whenever you kind of dig a bit deeper into it actually it's not quite zero tolerance in the, the kind of purely black and white sense there is this room in there that if that that if students are breaking breaking the rules that have been laid out actually the, the, there's room in there that if the teacher finds out a bit more about the situation and so on that those rules are relaxed and the consequences perhaps reversed and so on or do you think there, there is a there is a definite division between kind of pure zero tolerance versus Again, to take the full extreme, um, and I won't name any names here, but you, you, I've, I've seen people advocate that that kind of if, if the kids are misbehaving, it's the teacher's fault because the lesson isn't stimulating enough, and so on. Do, do you do you see a, a, as big a division there, or, or is it a, is it not quite as big as it may seem on first impression? I don't know if any of that makes any yeah. sense whatsoever. I, but I'm I, just interested in your take. I, I absolutely agree with you. I think in general, <laughs> quote me on this in a few years' time. I'll say again, but in general, I think. Binaries, binary beliefs are not helpful, in my mm. opinion. 
Um, and I know this as a recovering black and white thinker. <laughs> so, mm, yeah, so that's nice. I like that. That's good. I like that. Uh, so um, I've spent a lot of my adult years working out the grey in between. And I've done that in all sorts of areas of my life. But when it comes specifically to the, you know, what we're going to call the behaviour debate, um, mm. I think one really, really important thing to think about, especially on Twitter, is we can argue these polarised opposites as long as we like. The kids don't give a monkeys, right? <laughs> okay, whatever polarised debate is going on on Twitter, it, it, it like <laughs> it's kind of, again, going back to my PGCE student uh, teacher, uh, tutor, PGCE teacher, Steve, he said to me once, he said, no matter what theory you're debating or reading about or getting excited about, remember, the kids haven't read that. The kids haven't read that. <laughs> It's what you do when you step in that classroom that's important. So, yes, I think discussing different approaches to behaviour is incredibly fruitful. I mean, that's that's how I am, where I am now with behaviour. And it's how I've become a behaviour and education specialist is because I have these conversations and I learn more. And I learned that actually in this situation, actually, my approach that I thought was great just really doesn't work. It just yes. does because it's a different context. It's a different school. It's a different group of kids. And actually, for some um, young people, that zero tolerance, very disciplined approach actually makes them feel safer. OK, mm. fine. Um, on the other side of it, for some pupils, that would be massively triggering. It would send them completely to well, And actually, I do think that does explain why we have such a high amount of um, uh, such high percentage of children being excluded. Um, it's around i believe 35 children per day in britain are being excluded and wow that's too that's too many and i think that is because a lot of schools and academies do go down a, a kind of stronger hardline discipline mm. but all you're going to do with that is exclude people and what do we really gain not like what do we really gain in that so I think what's more useful is for all different people of all different beliefs to have open and um, supportive and interrogative. And I'm not saying we're all just going to be nice to each other. You know, <laughs> we should definitely argue what we believe and what our points are and our experiences, but in a safe environment that, from which we can learn from each other, because that will just make us all better at behaviour. And and I, I mean, when I, I was talking about like in my early 20s and I had this much more black and white thinking and, you know, the, the example I gave about when I had to apologise, <laughs> um, mm. that was because at that time I was a lot more um, kind of behaviour punishment, behaviour punishment. That, that's kind of how yes. I saw it. Um, and also zero, you weren't allowed to have an excuse with me for your jive dancing. Um, and OK, that got me so far. But it, it, it could only take me so far. I needed to learn from people who had a different approach. And, and again, we have all our pupils are different. And so we need all kinds of different approaches. So and I kind of think that, you know, that that philosophy of um, binary thinking being quite unhelpful. I, I see that as well when we go across into things like politics or um, yes. religions, cultures, um, sexualities, like everything. It's all just, it, it's just not that helpful. Yeah, it's it, it's fascinating this Adele. Um, let, let me ask you this. this. This this may be the worst worst question you've ever been asked um, in your life. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see where this goes. Uh, so lower your expectations. Okay. Um, one 
whenever whenever I've been teaching and a, and a kid's been messing around. Now I'm I'm gonna I've, I've I've admitted this on the podcast before that one thing I've definitely not been good enough at is finding out more about students' background. So reading all the the emails that come round with the uh, the student's profile and background and things that have happened. And that's a definite failing on my part. I've not been as as aware as I I could have been and should have been about students and specific circumstances. But the point I want to make here is that if I'm teaching year tens and um, thirty kids in the class one kid's messing around and my instinct is and after they've let's say I've warned them once and then they've carried on going I've perhaps warned them twice my instinct is right I've got to think of the other 29 kids in this class I want to get this kid out of the class I want to get, get them stood outside or whatever it is because every minute I'm spent focusing on this one child I'm letting down these other 29 kids in the class. And and that very kind of simple argument has been used by me in the past to justify whether it's, you know, removing students from the classroom or making them go and sit at the back or, or something like that. Now, Where's where am I going wrong there, Adele? Because I can tell everything you're, you you should see. If this was being videoed, I'm nodding along to absolutely everything that you everything you're saying. Uh-huh. I'm nodding along. I need to get to know the kids better. I need to have these these conversations, these breakthrough things that we can have where we get the kids back on board and, and so on and so forth. But in the in that moment when I've got thirty kids and I've got one kid messing around, my instinct is I've got to I've got to serve the majority. Now, where am I going wrong there, Adele? Okay, I'm going to answer that question, but I just want to address your feeling of failure first about that you, <laughs> yeah. that you had you felt like you'd failed because you hadn't had time to look through the data and da da da. My argument for that would be that's not your area of failure. That is uh, maybe the school or the education system's area of failure that they're not actually giving teachers enough time and space to do that. Mm. You're a conscientious teacher. That's interesting. You know, yeah. You're a conscientious teacher, otherwise you wouldn't have this podcast. Um, so, so I just want to address, don't take that personally. That's not, you know, don't, I don't want you to hold that, Craig. Um. No, and it's, it's interesting. Just, just, on, just on that, Adele, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, we have lots of school leaders listening to this. I found it far too easy to opt out of that kind of information, whether it's, you know, I've got 20 emails in my inbox. I don't have time to read that one. Or I'm in briefing and, and you know, the, the briefing's going on for 10 minutes and I'm looking at my watch thing. I need to get to my lesson. And then the last person to speak in briefing is mentioning something about a new child or some, some incident that's happened. I'm zoning out of that. And I think, like, I'm definitely, at fault there but also there's a role that there's there's this the onus has got to also be on the school and the school leaders to find ways to make teachers take in that kind of information right and if it's tagged on a tagged on an email or at the end of a busy briefing when you've got other things on your mind it just doesn't go in does it yeah exactly so that's to address that part (laughs) and then the second part and then the second part okay so there's kind of lots of ways round to look at this and it is trial and error and it's to do with mm. how you teach and and who you are and what you're comfortable with. And mm. I think, first of all, uh, a useful point to think is that what you appreciate appreciates. OK, so you talked about those 29 in the class and then you talked about this yes. one mucking around. And you yes. and in this instance, you said that there's just one mucking around. OK, and the 29 are doing well. Now, you even just in that example, you gave me quite a lot of um, detail about this kid mucking around. You didn't tell me anything about these five other kids who are doing some incredible work and they're doing stuff yes. they've never done before. And um you didn't tell me about these other five who were trying things they've never tried before, you know. And I think that that's the mindset shift that can be really helpful. It sounds really small. I, I realise that. And I and it, 
And I'll get to in a second how it practically works in the classroom. Sure. But if you walk into the classroom and let's say, for example, you know that Sarah is going to be the one looking around, right? You Before you've even put your hand on the door handle, you know Sarah's going to be looking about. So <laughs> what are you looking for when you walk into that classroom? Yeah. You yep, are looking yep. for something that's going to confirm what you believe. And so even if Sarah just rocks on her chair, you're going to you're going to go to that straight away. Sarah, you should yes. rock on your tablet down. So what you've done, you talked about this earlier, is like the escalation. You've already escalated it. And also from her point of view, you're reaffirming the narrative that Sarah's the naughty one or the badly behaved yes. one or whatever. OK. Meanwhile, Joe over here has just done his first ever quadratic equation. And, <laughs> nice. But you haven't been able to notice because you're too yes. bothered looking for Sarah who's who's swinging on her chair. Now, let's think in the grand scheme of things, Sarah swinging on her chair, if she falls off, she's going to soon learn <laughs> to, to, to not do that. And meanwhile, Joe's never done a quadratic equation. And that's mm. quite a big moment for him. And you've missed it. I'm not saying you personally, but you've missed it because you were too bothered look at, looking for the bad behavior. So that's the first step in terms of this wanting to give the attention to the 29. If that's what you want to do, then do it. Look yes. for the positive things that are going on, find them and be explicit about them. And this will be different for different age groups and a different appropriateness. And teenagers have a very different way, a quiet taste of wanting praise that's slightly <laughs> different to younger ones. But even just things like, oh, uh, Jared, I can see you've already made a start today. Excellent. You're already ahead of yourself. You know, that could be a kid who doesn't usually pick up a pen for the first 20 minutes and they've actually already opened the book and written the title. Now, it's not that much. And I'm not saying, I know there's an argument for overpraising. I'm not saying overpraise, oversing and dance, mm. but I'm saying be honest, be actually honest, yes. you know, or even before you saw Sarah, before she was just about to swing on a chair, you could say, oh, Sarah, great to see you sat ready to learn. Okay, which number are you on? So again, mm. the focus is has always got to be about the learning. And it's funny that we've talked about how, you know, some people are very subject specific enthusiasts, whereas I seem to be more around uh, looking at the behavior, understanding the child. Mm. But actually the way to do that most often is to focus back on the learning because that's what they're there for. You know, we, as much as sometimes we are, we're not really counsellors or social workers, <laughs> as much as sometimes it feels like it. Um, we are there to focus on the learning. And so bringing it back to that all the time. OK, great that you're doing it. Now, if it goes on and that kid is still looking about, they're not getting your kind of cues. Your Because really, when you're saying, oh, it's great that you've opened your book. Well, the next stage in that is, you know, do question one. <laughs> you're kind of prompting them. You're prompting them of the process of what you want them to do in order to learn. If they're not getting that for whatever reason, then, I mean, my strategy can be, could you just take a moment outside? And it is that kind of dialogue. It's not, get out of my classroom now. Yes. How dare you yes. swing on your chair? Because, again, the kids will just take the rip out of me for it. <laughs> yes. And, yes. and then they've also got this attention for, for bad behavior. We don't want that in our schools. We don't want people to get attention for bad behavior. We mm. want attention to be on the kids who are doing really well. And so, or oh, could you just step outside for a second? And then this is very interesting because sometimes, I mean, I'm talking about mainstream schools here. Um, sure. SEMH and, and Prus are slightly different than this, but for a kid to go outside, they, they do sometimes get this feeling of, oh, I'm missing out now. 
<laughs> so if yes. so if while you're just setting up the class before you can go and have that talk with them if you can if you can at all <laughs> like orchestrate some kind of ha 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 frivolity <laughs> then it, it's even more you know they're, they're kind of standing there and they're like but i'm missing out I know. Yes. but anyway once the kid is outside you can have that conversation with them and usually from my experience it takes about 30 seconds to a minute yes it yeah. doesn't take that long they don't have an audience to perform to anymore they don't have that box to tick of i'm the joker or i'm the one with the i'm the naughty kid or i'm the one with the most attentions they don't have that audience they don't have that role to play up to anymore you're actually just having a conversation with a human and then it's quite straight straightforward yeah i i, I agree um, I, i've certainly found that so I've, I've i've experimented and again there's there's no black and white as no, has been a theme no, with this exactly. conversation and um, with some behaviors and with some students just kind of ignoring it, it it makes it go away but sometimes if it's if i found it being it's disruptive it's like stopping yeah. me teaching it pointing off the other students then yeah just asking the child to stand outside and having that conversation has has in the main has sorted that out because as you say you you can just talk to them one-on-one -on -one and they don't have to play up to this reputation and so on and so forth so okay that that that's good to know because there's, there's, a, there's a danger isn't there Adele that and I, I, I assume maybe you've come across this that we whenever we talk about the importance of relationships we talk about the importance of getting to the root cause of the behavior there's a danger that I've certainly experienced that we can take the key implication of that is that it doesn't really matter what kids do in our classroom and how they misbehave we've got to just kind of allow for it because of their background and circumstances mm -hmm. but that that doesn't quite play into no, our role as a teacher to you know it's you see you see what i mean there's, there's a danger we can yes. kind of take, take the wrong implication from it and also it, so. that i think also there's a disservice there as well i mean we don't want to be saying oh you know this thing happened to this kid so we're going to let them off they can just do two questions actually yes, that's a disservice yes. to them because we're not holding high expectations for their um academic ability so it's a balance it totally is a balance and i think that's why it's really important that as we step into those classrooms that we are um, as as able as we possibly can to react to actually what's going on, so that you you know you're not just reacting out of um, out of like a pattern or a habit, yes. but you're really able to react from what's going on. And I think that goes back to a piece that I think we haven't really talked about yet, which is about self care. And it's something I massively advocate because especially if you're working with young people who have behavioural issues. You said to yourself, it can be really exhausting and mm. they will they will try and trigger you. <laughs> like, there's yes, no doubt about yes. it. And so the only way to be able to hold yourself in those situations is if you've got the basics in place. And there's I mean, there are many, many education practitioners who advocate for well-being and self-care as, as their speciality. So I'm not going to go into it all. But just to I just want to make that point within this conversation that um you know, sometimes people say to me, oh, my God, how can you work with teenagers with behavior problems? Da, 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 da. And it's because like, really fundamentally, I put in place in my life what I need to be able to do that. So I get my sleep. I have a reasonable diet. Um, I have time off completely. Um, I, I get opportunity to be creative. I, I work really hard when I need to. Like I have a band. And that's why I can step into that classroom because I know that whatever that kid tries to, you know, whichever scab is being tried to be picked <laughs> at, <laughs> because I'm like a, a full or near full tank, I can do that. And that's okay. Um, and it's when we are um, being given a silly workload from schools or, or the government or the education system, whatever it is. Um, it's when we're not sleeping properly, when we're not getting our breaks, when we're not eating lunch. Guess what? We're more snappy. 
And those, mm. those students pick up on that. And so um, it's the first chapter of my book is looking at you. And, you know, we all know this. If we haven't, if we skip breakfast, we're more irritable. So if you skip breakfast and Sarah's swinging on a chair, <laughs> you know, yes, it, escala it's a combo. it escalates mm. quicker. So that's why that I do want to make a point of the self-care for teachers is really important. And particularly with kids with behavioural needs, often the it's the least qualified people, the teaching assistants, who are put to be with those children with behavioural issues for most of their day. And I don't think that's particularly helpful most of the time. If you're lucky, you've got a TA who is incredibly experienced. I mean, we all know them, you know, the ones yes. who knows every kid, knows everybody's kid's <laughs> parent, knows what they all had for breakfast this morning. You know, there are some TAs who are fabulous like that, really are. And I've learned a lot from them. Um, but I think there are, that there is a, a, a wrong, um, what would I say, and deployment of attention sometimes that the, the least experienced or the least qualified person is having to deal with the child with the most needs that's not yes. right that's not right and again if they don't have the support if that ta doesn't have the support because let's let's think about it the, the, a ta hasn't had any teacher training um i mean we talk about maybe sometimes as not being enough but at least we've had it um mm. and they might not they might start to say things very personally if they're having a lot of behavior issues with the the young person that they're supposed to be supporting and i think that's an interesting piece for um school leaders to look at as well the deploy the deployment of who who are these young people with the highest behavioral needs who are they spending their most most of their time with that is it's fascinating sadal and again going back to self-care I mean, it's an issue, in my experience anyway, for, for nearly all teachers. Um, it's, it's very rare you get a teacher who's got a really good kind of work-life balance and yeah. so on and, and puts themselves ahead, ahead of their, their students because inevitably you go into teaching because you care about the kids and you, you get this feeling, I've certainly experienced it myself, that I've got to keep working harder and keep putting the hours in because it's going to be better for the kids and so on. And it's a, it's a mm -hmm. very dangerous spiral to get into. Yeah. But I think it's also a particular problem for teachers in their first few years of their career when you're perhaps not as fast at planning lessons as, as you yes. are whenever you get a bit more experience. So you, you end up staying up that little bit later. Everything takes a little bit longer. You're getting less and less sleep. You're also not as experienced at dealing with different behavior issues yeah. that come up and so on. I, I know for about the first four or five years of my career, I took everything personally. If yeah. kid was messing around, <laughs> you know, all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it's an issue for all teachers, but particularly teachers in their first few years. Would you agree with that, Adele? And what, what, can, what can teachers do to kind of to help? Because it, it's so hard, isn't it? You've got to plan lessons for tomorrow. It's 10 o'clock at night. You're yes. knackered. It's so difficult, isn't it? It is. And I think, I think it's something wrong with our profession as a whole, mm. um, if I'm mm. going to be honest. Um, I think I do believe that there are certain people, perhaps within the government or, or within the rhetoric of education, that almost take advantage of the fact of what you said, that because we're teachers and we put other people first, like that's almost like mm. it's inbred in us, isn't it? If you want to be a teacher, yes, yes. you care about others. It's like it's, it's in our DNA. And I almost feel that um, the teaching profession is taken advantage of sometimes because of that in a way that you wouldn't get necessarily in in perhaps corporate or private um, industries because if you if you're just if you're just always relying on the goodwill of your teachers they're going to run dry it you know it, it only goes so far and I think exactly what you're saying particularly early teachers I mean um, the rhetoric I definitely got during my training was to be a teacher you have to give 110 percent yes yeah. um and that's not realistic 
And I think the biggest lesson I've learned is about being good enough. And I had a, I was really lucky. I had a great mentor in uh, my second placement. And um, as I said, up to this point, I, I taught for years, but always in a kind of visiting capacity or a kind of long-term semi-contract or something. So every lesson that I taught, probably because of my background, was this kind of theatrical, wonderful experience. <laughs> and um, it, I got to my second placement, PGCE, and as a, as a, a kind of new teacher, the mentor gave me the best, most difficult challenge I had. And he said to me, for the next two weeks, I want you to plan boring lessons. Oh, wow. And I, I, I had such a hissy fit, Craig. I was like, what do you mean? How can I be boring? That is me. That's not my authentic self. And I had this whole like identity crisis about it. Um, luckily, he was really experienced and that was like, yeah, okay, right. Um, but what he taught me, and I could, and because he was experienced, he was, he was very clever. What he was teaching me was the skill to go in and to be good enough. So, because mm. he could see, because obviously PGC, you're at what, maximum 50% timetable? Yes. Um, and of course, I could create a whole singing and dancing yeah. lesson for each lesson. Um, but he was giving me that skill of being good enough. And I hated it. I was kicking and screaming. But oh, my goodness, first year NQT. Did I appreciate that? Yes. <laughs> you know? And um, and also for the kids as well, for them to know that, I mean, I, I kind of, I, th I think, I don't know, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think that the feedback I get from students is that my lessons are quite fun and interactive and engaging, but also they need to know that sometimes we just need to do a mock exam and, mm. and we need to be in silence and that's what that's what needs to happen. You know, that is part of the education system in Britain as it stands and that's, that's the game we're playing. Um, and so learning to be good enough is is massive and i think the key to that is is being part of groups um getting support talking to your mentors um being supported by other um early year teachers um is that hang on have i said that right do i mean early years early year teachers teachers early in their career yeah <laughs> um, that's what i mean and i know uh, dr emma kell kell or nell um she does a lot of work around this and she she has how to survive your first year in teaching um her book and and they talk about that a lot that you know that you need to be part of a community in order to um to kind of like know that you're okay mm. i fascinating i'm absolutely loving this adele let, 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 let me ask you this um I mentioned before how I, I felt I'd learned a lot from my limited experience working in a, in a pupil referral unit. Can you and can you just paint us a picture? What, what will be some of the differences, whether it's um, alternate provision or, or a PRU? What are some of the kind of day-to-day -day differences with, with how lessons transpire and breaks and lunch times and just the general runnings? Just just if we've got teachers like myself who spent mm. most of the time in mainstream, just, just give us a bit of paint us a bit of a picture of what, what life's like. <laughs> Good question. Okay. Um, so in general, and I, I know how this sounds to a mainstream teacher, there's a lot fewer pupils. So you might have five or six or maximum kind of eight or 10 in a class, which sounds blissful when you're going to mainstream. <laughs> However, um, they are the students with very, very, very high profile needs. Um, yes. So you'll also, um, more often than not, it'll be one teacher and at least one, if not two TAs. So a lot of the pupils that you work with will have EHPs, education, healthcare plans that require um, by law that for them to have one to one support um, for whatever reason. Um, it might be a behavioural reason. It might be um, uh, an emotional reason. It might be a safety reason for some of them. Mm. 
Um, so there's there's a lot higher proportion of staff to children, which in one way is absolutely brilliant. We really know our kids when we're working in special schools and crews because there are fewer of them. Um, so, so I think that on the, the flip side of that, the depth of the work around the child that you need to do is massive. So there's going to be a lot less marking. I mean, some mainstream teachers who, who make their way over, they love that idea, you know, that they love the fact that there's a lot less marking because there's, you know, smaller classes and, and in general, they're not producing as much work. Yes. Um, in general, not all, but in general. Um, but the emotional side of it will be a lot heavier. Um, you know, I have been hit several times. Um, I'm called all the names under the sun um, before nine o'clock. Um so there's there's a different type of work that needs to happen and for the children i think we because we know them individually a lot more we know their families a lot more we know their situations a lot more um it's there's a lot more kind of um meet i think meeting them where they're at and then bringing them into the expectation of school whereas i would say in mainstream just because of the the sheer number in mainstream comprehensive of, of pupils per a teacher you you kind yes. of you haven't got time for that you there has to be this kind of unwritten rule and in some cases written that when you go in the classroom it's it's time to learn and and more or less most of them do that more you know as a general kind of cultural thing whereas we kind of stem more from okay what's happened with this child today where are they at okay great and now let's meet them with their learning there and mm. some teachers absolutely thrive in it and they love it because um they love that they can respond to the child and that the that the learning i mean we're really forced to make our learning really um creative because uh for example uh there was a, a pupil i met last year came into year seven and had missed a massive chunk of education due to um not being able to stay with the family, it affected the school, et cetera, et cetera. So came in year seven, was not able to recognize all the letters of the alphabet, let, wow. let alone any words, okay? And and so suddenly you've got to get creative because you can't teach that child the alphabet in the same way as you would teach a four-year-old the alphabet. Yes. And the resources are not always there either. Um, so I'm trying to do really, really basic reading skills with a child who's nearly a teenager. And so in terms of that side of your pedagogy, it really, it really um, challenges you to really think out of the box. <laughs> and I've done all sorts. I've done kind of learning, uh, learning the alphabet with like sticks in mud and going out and doing things like that. Or I taught them some basic words around road signs because I thought, OK, what does this child, what kind of words does this child see every day? What can they mm. kind of get used to really quickly? how can I get a quick win around reading? You know, that was the kind of idea. And so I taught them, yeah, just stop and roundabouts and, you know, just things like that. Um, but so you're kind of really pushing your um, approach to teaching and lesson planning from that point of view. Um, from the other side, you are less likely to kind of go really, really into depth into your subject. So that's kind mm. of the difference approaches, approaches to teaching. And, and for some for some teachers, they love it. And for some teachers, it's not for them. It's fascinating. And again, it's I don't know how easy it will be for listeners, but if you do have the opportunity to to visit, whether it's an alternate provision or, or a PRU, again, just like getting into a primary school, just getting into any different context is so useful, isn't it, Adele? Just to, just to see specialists in their field working, you can just pick up so much. Would you agree? 
Absolutely. And I think it's something that I miss from my training days is how much I observed of teachers. And you, you can't, yes. it's like, you know, youth is wasted on the young. It's like you can't quite appreciate it when you're a trainee because you're, right. you're going, ha ha, I'm a trainee and I've got a million things exactly. to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just advocate that always, the more you can get in different settings and even, you know, even different roles. I shadowed my um, chief exec head teacher. Uh, last year for a week because I just wanted to know what she did I just thought well you know especially I mean uh, that's a whole other divide on Twitter the the kind of SLT teacher divide and that Mm. kind of thing and I I really wanted to know more about okay what what does it look like from the head head's angle and even that in itself really informed more like it sounds crazy that that informed my teaching as well just being put in a different setting still in education but seeing it from a different angle I think it can only it can only give us more rich experiences to put in the classroom absolutely absolutely now um Adele I'm looking through my list of bullet points of things I wanted to discuss and in it in a kind of order that we never planned I think we've covered most Ah. it's been ram full of practical stuff but I want to ask you before I start moving towards your reflections I just want to um, address what one issue, and this is surrounding the, the pandemic and the fact that schools have been closed and so on. And feedback that I've had from a few colleagues that I've spoken to who have been back teaching, whether it's year 10s or year 6s and so on, is that for the majority of students, um, they are pleased to be back into school. And, and actually, that when you speak to them, there doesn't seem to be on the surface anything that's kind of fundamentally changed about them or anything like that. And it goes back to what you were saying before, how very much the government me- government message seems to be like when we get to September let's just crack on as normal it'll be best for everybody and so on but I get the sense that that may not be true of all students and particularly students um, SEM SEMH students so I wonder could you just paint us a bit of a picture Adele what 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 are some of the challenges that those students are going to have gone through over the three months or so that schools have been closed and and how might that play out um, in September so to answer that question, we could go on forever because obviously each individual pupil is going to have experienced something different. But the general patterns that I've seen with SEMH pupils. So for a lot of them, not all of them, um, they will have been classed as what the government has labelled vulnerable pupils. OK, mm. that, I know that's a contentious um, term in itself, but let's go with it for now. Um, so that means a lot of them will have had some kind of experience of going into schools during this time. Uh, so a lot of the Prus and special schools, I mean, when the, when the government, I, I did get a little bit cross, when the government said schools are shut, but apart from pupils on EHCPs, I was like, well, that's all my pupils. Ah! Yes, of course, of course. May have thrown something at the TV. Um, <laughs> but it does mean that some, um, a lot of them will have had an experience of going into school. Now, if we're in a mainstream setting and they've had experience of going into school, they might have actually had the type of learning that suits them better. They've had um, more adult adult to child ratio. They've had more space within, like physically space within the building. Um, Mm. The environment's been calmer. Um, There's been fewer distractions. So for some of those pupils, they've actually had a, a kind of a more productive learning environment for them. Also, the, the, I'm aware the timetables haven't been as tight with these children who've been going in. So there's been more space for um, learning what they're interested in or um, doing a topic that they are ready to learn about rather than, well, it's, you know, it's maths now and that's it. There's no moving. It's maths now. You've got to do maths. But I really want to finish writing my story. No, you can't. It's maths. You know. Yes. Um, so actually, some of those pupils may have had a really fruitful experience. 
I'm thinking about those students in mainstream because now we go, let's say it all happens as the government is planning and we go back in September. Now those students will suddenly have all the other students coming back in Mm, and mm. they might find that quite hard particularly students with attachment issues who uh, have difficulty with perhaps trusting their relationship with an adult or um, believing that they are still being thought about when when they're not they haven't got the full attention of the adult so suddenly let's say from going being in a class of maybe two or three to suddenly back to your 30 that's going to be quite a transition for those pupils so I think it's going to be really important for us to prepare them that it is going to be more like that and to be kind of conscious of them as as we move forward with the the kind of classes as they fully come back. Then you've had the types of students who have not been at school at all and as I said at the start the ones that we're all worried about the most are the ones we haven't heard from. Yes, Um, yes. We don't know what they've gone through. Also, what really massively worries me is the government's suggestion that parents and carers are going to be fined for not sending their children in. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe this is massively unhelpful um, because if you've got a student who, for whatever reason, is anxious, has got themselves into a state where they are becoming a school refuser, for example, um, that kind of stresses you out as a parent. That's not a pleasant experience. And then to have a fine put on you as well. Yes. I'm yes. just not sure how that's a useful strategy. Uh, and I would I would like to be shown how that is a useful strategy um, <laughs> to learning. You know, and I, that is always my thing. I mean, I talk about behavior a lot, but my focus is always on let's get these kids learning. And I think stressing their parents and carers out is, is not helpful for that. Um, but for those people who haven't been in, because I mean, there are some I work with who have chosen not to go in, even though they had the opportunity. Um We're going to have to, as I said at the start, we're going to have to make sure that we have routine and structure that is flexible so that they can see that. And like some really practical tips that could be useful for SMH pupils, children with uh, autistic pupils, children with ADHD, for example, um, are, are really giving the visuals. So if they've got a new timetable, making sure they actually have it and don't just give it them once and expect them to keep it. They've probably lost it. It's probably at the bottom of the bag for the used <laughs> condoms or whatever. You know, it's got to um, give them a visual timetable and maybe each morning we refer back to it again because that's helping, as we talked about earlier, um, helping them slowly re-engage and re-transition back into that mindset of, oh, yes, routine. Oh, yeah, maths is on a Monday and then followed by geography. And I can't do my, I know, constructing a a bench that day. That has to wait on a Wednesday. Going back to that kind of learning, especially for, I mean, there are some pupils I know who have become nocturnal. Um, which is really unhelpful and is really upsetting and and worrying for parents and carers. And again, I just don't see why putting a fine on them is going to help the situation. Anyway, (laughs) Um, (laughs) there might be some very, very practical things that we need to do to help shift children's sleep patterns. And again, if if we can, if, if their sleep pattern has gone so far off, um, suddenly expecting them to arrive on whatever 5th of September, um, to be able to be up and ready to learn at, at nine o'clock, it's not going to happen. It's just not practical. So we need to be kind of aware of those as well. And then underlining all this, especially for our SAMH pupils, but actually all pupils, is the safeguarding and child protection issue. So we had a massive safeguarding issue when we first went into lockdown because for some of our pupils, we are 
looking and unfortunately we're always having to look for evidence and symptoms of neglect abuse and for some of the pupils we haven't seen obviously that's much much harder and i'm talking about maybe mm. physical marks or um signs of malnourishment or di different signs of, of neglect or abuse and i think we have to be quite open and ready for that as teachers and actually even mainstream teachers because sometimes pupils are very clever at hiding these things because they don't want to get home life in trouble um yes you know and and again i'm not saying that parents and carers have done anything bad it might be that they haven't been able to support them themselves maybe they've been having their own mental health crises um during this pandemic and looking after the nine-year-old child just what they just could not do it um mm. it might not be through bad intent um but as teachers as professional adults um it's going to be a massive job for us to check in this is why the check-in is so important in, in, in various different ways. And as I said on my blog, because I've got lots of more ideas I share on how to do that, um, because child protection and safeguarding is going to be an issue. Um, and then on the other side, you you are going to have pupils who are going to come back and want to be back and, and are going to really enjoy it. But I think we've just got so many variants. There's going to be students worried about how their friends treat them or how is my friend going to treat me if I'm in a different bubble from them? And, yes. And that yes. kind of thing. I mean, the bubble thing really terrifies me because... Oh, you know, you know, there's been experiments that if you split up a, a class, for example, by um, their eye colour, just their eye colour, and you say, OK, these people with this eye colour here, these people with this eye colour, and if you, not as like a one-off exercise, but if you run your classroom in that way, just the fact that you've made two groups, one and the other, this is going back to the binary thinking, um, it creates over time, the children start behaving and saying things that we would perhaps um, label as racist. Okay, so oh, I'm not being in that group because that group does this. Our group's better than that, you know. And it, it's kind of the start of us and them, us and the other. Yeah. And I'm quite worried about that because if, if I mean, I'm sure someone's going to message into you, Craig, and tell me which experiment I'm talking about because I can't remember. But um, if that's <laughs> just over eye color, I'm just I'm I'm really worried wow. about these bubbles, like the social impact that that could have on on the kind of community and cultures that we're we're supporting within our schools. Because in general, schools talk about school values, we're all together, yes. yada yada yada, and suddenly we're like we're all together, but don't touch those people. Yes, exactly. I'm a bit worried about that. Um, so, yeah, to answer the question, we've got to be ready for all sorts, essentially. Mm. And I think going back to the behaviour piece, I think as well that it's not just going to be the pupils who we usually think of as having challenging behaviour or, or, or behaviour that challenges the adults. But also we're going to see very, very different behaviours from, from lots of students and, and not necessarily always the openly aggressive, disruptive way. There might be some students who have gone really, really quiet and they never used to be quiet. Why? What's happened? What, you know, are they feeling anxious? Are they nervous about, are they nervous about catching coronavirus or spreading it? Yeah. You know, that is a genuine concern for a lot of our students, you know, and so I think we've just got to have this, um, so Julie Andrews says, kind but firm. So kind but firm. <laughs> and it is, again, it's that routine and the boundaries, but we absolutely need that compassion and consistency with our kindness when we go back. Flipping it. That's brilliant. Pr practical advice and plenty to think about there, Adele. That's fantastic. Um, so it's time for your reflections now. Um, I wonder, is there an example of something important that you've changed your mind about over the years? Mm -hmm. 
I think it is that piece around black and white thinking. Um, mm. So I know that I used to be a lot more inverted commas strict <laughs> as a teacher. Um, and I think that stemmed from the teachers I'd had. There was a teacher that was very influential to me when I was younger and she was terrifying. Um, <laughs> so I think I just, uh, you know, uh, I think we talk about this a lot in, in early career training about how have you been taught and things. And I, I was much more black and white. Um, I, and I think the, the advantage I've got now is that I can do that. I can do that when it's needed and it, when it's needed for the pupils who I know it will work for, who need that kind of um, discipline and structure. But now I've got extra feathers in my boat. Now I can loosen that. I can um, adapt and accommodate different things at different times. And it's, it's really nice to have that, actually, because I, I used to be black and white strict. And um, it only took me so far. I like, and I love your phrase before you're a recovering black and white thinker. That's lovely. Yeah. That. I really, really <laughs> like that. Really like that. Um, and second reflection, and um, what do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know oh, now? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> okay, that it's okay to get on with what you think is right in your classroom, um, and you don't have to necessarily tell everyone about it. <laughs> okay so because I think I was um I was very perhaps over conscientious when I first started teaching and I needed to kind of prove that I was doing good things in my classroom you know that kind of um conscientious pupil (laughs) I was I was probably that kind of teacher whereas now um, and I think as well the observations I always felt like I had to prove something in the observations and prove I was ticking the boxes and and what I've kind of discovered as I've gone on is that actually those people who are observing you, they're learning from you too. And actually you can have a kind of really lovely conversation and learn from each other's practice. But you can only learn from each other's practice if you're doing your own practice. If I'm trying yes. to emulate somebody else's practice to try and be, you know, good enough or whatever, it, it's not actually my practice anyway. So just kind of really work with the people who are in front of me, work with what works for them to help them learn and then when you have the conversations with other people who are observing or asking you about your practice, then you've got something to talk about, <laughs> um, which is, I think, a lot more healthy and um, it's a lot more chill as well in terms of self-care. <laughs> it's important. Fantastic. Okay, Del. so now it's time for your big three. So what three websites or blog posts would you recommend our listeners check out? And I'll put links to all of these in the podcast show notes page. Great. Okay. So I've mentioned before Lisa Cherry. She is a practitioner who works particularly around trauma and her podcast. Am I allowed? Oh, am I allowed to advertise another podcast? You can have a ride. I mean, I'm not happy about it, but we'll let it, we'll let it slide for this it one. Is, yeah, it is very fabulous. So um, <laughs> yeah, she's definitely worth a look at her work, definitely, and her website. And she's on Twitter as well. And um, another person that I've been working with recently I've been doing some online courses for her is Pookie uh, Knightsman and her company Creative Education they're currently doing free online courses they're kind of open for a week and you can use them free and then I think you can sign up and and get access to all of them and and pay a fee and and do that Um, so I've done a couple of courses on there but she covers some really interesting topics around anxiety, children with high anxiety, school refusers, um, children with eating disorders. So lots of really specific practical advice coming from her um, in general. I, I definitely follow her on Twitter as well. 
And then um, with my, my third person that's not me on my website <laughs> um, is someone I've learned a lot from is Pranav Patel, who is an absolute go for for anything on decolonize the curriculum. He has very lovingly and compassionately pulled me up <laughs> on my um, approach to inclusivity and unconscious bias. And as as have I to him for his blind spots and his work that he's doing around decolonizing the curriculum, particularly relevant right now. Um, I mean, when I look at the stats around, for example, the percentage of um, non-white students who end up in prison APs, again, it is disproportionate. And mm. there's a reason for that. There's an unconscious bias within our education system. And the work that Pranav Patel does around that um, and his blogs are just, I learn so much from him when I read his blog. So, yeah, totally recommend those. Wow, they, they sound again. It's it's interesting. Sometimes when I speak to maths teachers and stuff, the same big three, the same entries come up again and again. But they're three brand new ones that are down yes. that I can't wait to check out. And tell us a bit. Tell us a bit about your website as well. You've you've mentioned you've got some blog posts on there that um, listeners can check out. What what else can they can they look forward to seeing? Okay, so this. August, I am absolutely thrilled. People have been asking me for a while um, to offer my first live online training. So I'm going to do a masterclass series. Uh, it's going to be three masterclasses over three days. So there's a free webinar coming up about that on the 6th of August the 6th of August, um, where you can get to know a bit more about myself, how I work, and a bit more about the content for that. It's all going to be about essentially what we've been talking about. So it's how to manage challenging behavior in the classroom or behavior that challenges us as teachers. We're going to be looking at some kind of key fundamental approaches and how-tos. I'm going to be bringing in a lot more of the kind of practical tips that I've referred to here. And um, alongside that, obviously, looking at how we're going to be approaching behavior in the classroom stepping into September as well. So I'm absolutely really excited to be offering that for the first time <laughs> uh, with all the scary tech things that you have to do behind yes. online courses but um no I'm, I'm really pleased so the, there's that coming up on the 6th of um august if you're interested in that then the best thing to do is get on my newsletter which is available at my website which is adelebateseducation.co.uk and there's also on there different ways if you want to work with me for a training or a keynote etc it's all on there so have a look fantastic well i'll tell you what and i don't say this to to all my guests this has been absolutely mind-blowing for, for me adele because it's it's, it's speaking about things that are a little bit outside of my comfort zone, certainly outside my area of expertise, if I have any expertise at all. And I, it certainly gives me loads to think about. And what I'm what I'm going to go and do now is I always go for a big walk after a podcast and I, oh. I reflect on it. And then I record my record my takeaways at the end of the show. And it, the, the takeaways could be longer than the actual interview itself because I've got <laughs> lo, lo, lots to think about on this. So thank you so much for giving your time today and, and share, sharing your experience and your expertise with us, Adele. I know listeners are going to absolutely love this episode so thank you so much thank you and i think i don't know if you're going to put it in your notes um do come and have a look over at the insults of the week that i share on twitter because they are hilarious um uh, people um chip in and share the kind of random insults that they've had from children <laughs> during that week do you have a do you have a personal favorite adele what, what somebody oh, said to you yeah okay so it was a classic to end on okay this is a good one um so a child said to me Oh, miss, you're a MILF. Now, for those of you who don't know, a MILF is a mother I'd like to 
I mean, it's a, yeah. possibly a compliment. And, this and is I, okay. Yeah, exactly. And I said, okay, that's that's not appropriate to say. <laughs> and the child genuinely looked concerned and went, oh, miss, don't don't you have kids? You're not a mum. I said, no, no, I'm not yet. <laughs> and he said, oh, all right, then. You're an ilf. <laughs> still not appropriate. Oh, still no. not appropriate. <laughs> Um, yeah, that is one of the classics. So uh, if you want to be involved in Insult of the Week, we have a bit of a laugh there and make sure we're not taking ourselves too seriously. Um, I'm over at Adele Bates Z. Adele Bates Z. Fantastic. And there'll be a link to uh, your Twitter profile so people can get straight onto that and your uh, your website in the show notes. Adele, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me on, Craig, and making me think. <laughs> So there you have it. There was my interview with the wonderful Adele Bates. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and got as much out of it as I did. I've been wanting to do a behaviour-specific episode for a long time now. The only one we've ever done was way back in the early days of the podcast when I was lucky enough to interview Tom Bennett on the show. And that got a really positive reaction. And and it's no surprise, really, that, that teachers want to hear conversations and insights and advice surrounding behaviour. Because we know, and whether this is because of my interview with Becky Allen or just anecdotal evidence, we know that the two main reasons that teachers leave our profession in droves are behaviour and workload. And it fascinates me this because certainly the CPD that I've been lucky enough to be on over the last three or four years has been very much centred around learning, whether it's cognitive science, cognitive load theory, uh, all the research into retrieval, working memory, stuff on variation theory and so on and so forth. But if we forget about the behaviour aspects, if we forget about those relationships that we have with students, a lot of all that other thing that we spend our time focusing on kind of goes out the window because if kids are misbehaving, if they're not concentrating, if they're they're not paying attention themselves, then they've zero chance of learning. And also if students are trying to pay attention and yet there's behavior issues with other students in the class, again, that's only gonna hinder their learning. And I know as having taught for what, 12, 13 years myself, behavior was, it was at the root cause of some of my worst days as a teacher. I'd feel a failure. I'd come out of that room. The kids have been playing up and I think, what what am I doing wrong? I can't do this anymore. I remember, I've spoke about this on the podcast myself. When I um, when I first changed schools, having taught in my first school for six years, um, that first term, I, I was going to say half term, but I think it was first term in my new school, I'd lost the ability to teach because I couldn't control the kids. I didn't, I, the behavior wasn't the behavior that I expected from the students. And looking back, I think a a lot of this comes down to relationships. A lot of this comes down to the students not trusting kind of new unfamiliar people, particularly if they've had a rocky ride in the past, both in terms of school and also, as Adele alluded to, some, some shocking home lives and experiences that these students have had. And when you look at it through that lens, it's kind of only natural that they, they play up. It's almost a defense mechanism. And it's It's about trying to establish these relationships, establish these structures and routines, and it's incredibly difficult. It's it's something that comes with experience, but certainly listening to people like Adele and and Tom Bennett, you you can pick up on things that can certainly make 
that that job of of getting the students on board a lot easier and the, and it's not just it's it's not it's not the mistake that I made for many years as a teacher where it's, it's trying to be mates with the kids and trying to kind of operate on their level and it's not as simple as just trying to find out what they're interested in and pretend you're interested in it as well it's it's a lot more complex than that but if we if we don't think as hard about behavior and relationships with students as we do about cognitive science, working memory, and so on and so forth, then potentially we're going to be in a bit of trouble. So that's why I was desperate to get Adele on the show. And I'm going to be looking to do more, more episodes like this in the future, more, more kind of generic's not quite the word I'm looking for, but, but more moving away sometimes from cognitive science and the things that regularly come up on this show to those other aspects of teaching. I, I, I want to do more things on well-being. I want to do more things on, on workload and so on. Because again, if we don't get those things right, we know that's why te teachers and good teachers are leaving our profession. So in terms of takeaways, um, I'm still trying to stick to this thing of, of being a bit more concise with my takeaways and stop just kind of rambling on. I'm already probably failing on that one. But I've just got three things I, I really wanted to just pick up on um, that I've been thinking about ever since I spoke to Adele. The first was, I love that practical tip about the register. Really, really nice. That idea that instead of students saying yes, sir, or yes, miss, they just say a word to kind of sum up how they're feeling. Now, it's, it's one of those things, when Adele first said it, I'm thinking, oh God, I can imagine some classes, this is going to be an absolute car crash with them. They'll either shut up uh, and not say a word, or I can imagine some quite inappropriate words being, being mentioned, some of the students that, that I've taught over the years. But like anything, if this becomes part of students' routine and if they realize that that firstly the teacher's taking it seriously it's not just a gimmick and that also actually this this can be really useful because if students aren't feeling so good and a number of students aren't feeling so good or they've got something else on their mind if they voice they they verbalize it and the teacher can then address it and deal with it it's it's really good for the students because they can then kind of get that out of their mind and then concentrate back on the learning and i love the fact that adele kept saying whilst Whilst her kind of main thing is, is behavior and, and the well-being of kids, her purpose is to help the students learn. And it's just that she sees the key route into this as to, to help them with their behavior and their well-being and so on. So if students being able to say how they're feeling and the teacher, you know, being able to respond, responsive teaching as, as a result of that can help those students in their learning, then it's got to be a good thing to, to do. So I really like that. And I'd be interested if listeners try that out and can get that established. I don't think it's going to happen, you know, in, in the short term. I don't think it's a one lesson job. I think this is kids have got to get used to this over a half term over a term and so on but that could be something really nice to build into that register routine to help get a sense of the room and uh, react accordingly and um, the second thing i wanted to reflect on is is this debate this there's loads of debates in, in education and that's great. It can be really positive. I've certainly had my thinking challenged loads, um, as particularly recently, um, over things that I agree with and that other teachers don't. But there's a definite debate when it comes to behaviour. And whether, I mean, all you need to do is, is search for the hashtag ban the booths and you'll see it all kicking off here with people kind of a, a real, well, seemingly at opposite ends of the, of, the, of the spectrum with this that you often get, and it's often focused around exclusion whether that be you know exclusions in terms of permanent exclusions away from the school or kind of short-term exclusions in terms of going into isolation booths and so on and it 
teachers uh, inevitably are, are, are very passionate about this and, and very kind of sticking to their views and it can, like anything on Twitter it can get out of hand with some real kind of nasty comments flying around left right and center but the point I wanted to make here and this came up in my conversation with Adele is that when you dig into it a little bit more I'm not so sure that the differences are quite as as wide as they they seem on on first viewing take something like zero tolerance so um, Danny Quinn the head of maths at Michaela has been on this show twice and you would probably categorize Michaela as a, a zero tolerance school. It would probably be labeled as that. And certainly it's, it's a strict school. There are really strict rules in place. But if you talk to Danny and whether this is just listening to her two lengthy interviews on the podcast or if you've been lucky enough to speak to Danny just personally, you'll, you'll know that Danny and all her team, first and foremost, they care so much about those kids. They love those kids to bits. All they want, all they want is for those kids to succeed and be happy, prosperous and, and thrive in that environment. So relationships are at the key to to a school like Michaela that's labeled as zero tolerance. The relationship between teacher and student is, is, is at the forefront of that. Now, sure, there may be a few more rules in place than perhaps in other schools, and there may be stricter consequences for breaking those rules. But again, it's not the case that Danny and her team wouldn't take into account any of the students' background and circumstances and so on. It would just be done in a very kind of specific and, and controlled way. So like anything, whether it's the debate between explicit instruction and inquiry, or whether it's the debate between traditional and constructivism or whatever it is, there's a little bit more nuance to it when you look into it and perhaps the gulf isn't as wide as it as it may seem. Um, I really like, by the way, just on this, that um, Adele was talking about non-negotiables. She has maybe three non-negotiables. That, that's where she draws the line. And if a, any child crosses that line, then there's going to be consequences. Now, when you start talking about non-negotiables, that's often the kind of terminology get, that gets lumped in with zero tolerance. But this is, this is coming from Adele, who certainly, I don't want to put words into her mouth, but, well, in fact, I think she said it herself during the interview. She would, she would not be talking about, she would not be advocating a zero-tolerance environment. But this is what I mean. I don't think it's quite as, quite as clear-cut as that, certainly when it comes to behaviour. And I like the fact that um, Adele was quite supportive of, I mean, God almighty, I am no behaviour expert. It's one of my weak points, to be honest with you. But um, the, the strategy of a quiet word outside uh, with the child to diffuse situations, I found that to be my kind of most powerful go-to behaviour strategy over the years. That it just gives the child a chance to calm down. It gives me as a teacher a chance to calm down. It means that we can then have a conversation one-to-one -one so the student doesn't feel obliged to play up. But also, I don't feel obliged to play up. And it's where kind of compromise can be can be reached, if that makes sense. Um, I, I find it a really powerful strategy just to ask the child just to stand outside. We have a quiet word. We can talk about whether they feel ready to come back into the room and so on and so forth. But again, this, this isn't me meant as advice or anything. It's just sharing my experiences over the years when it, when it comes to behavior. And Adele dropped loads of uh, better nuggets than that throughout this conversation. And the final thing I just wanted to discuss in this takeaway was very timely this uh, what's going to happen after well not after the pandemic but when students start to return uh, more in larger numbers to school whether it's in September if you're teaching in England or perhaps August if you're in Scotland or whenever it may be wherever in the world you're listening to this. It's going to be a very interesting time. Um, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about um, when I consider this and speak to colleagues is, is the need for patience. And that's patience with our students who, who could have gone through some quite horrific times at home or 
sometimes and experiences that don't look horrific on paper but which have been incredibly challenging for students mental health not seeing friends for a prolonged period of time not being in the routine of school for a prolonged period of time spending a bit much bit too much time with siblings or parents or whatever it may be so patience with our students uh, patience with our colleagues um i i've i mean i've been quite public with the fact that i've found this uh, this lockdown and um, incredibly challenging for myself and um, but you will have colleagues in your school who perhaps have also found it challenging but have perhaps not been open with it and have got things bubbling away and it won't be a case that they'll be able to just snap back into their routine when when september or whenever it is comes along and again yeah, i can imagine some some it kind of heated arguments and some snappiness going on and it's again just like with a student what's the root cause of that is it the situation or is it what they're going through but also patience with ourselves um i i've been thinking a lot about this um for many teachers won't have taught um in a classroom environment certainly not kind of 25 30 kids for potentially what six months when september comes around not far off something like that and um, teachers will be out of practice what used to be routine will now be novel and will be possibly back to the kind of role of novice teachers where you know it won't won't just be coming naturally the flow won't be there we'll have to pay a bit more attention to things that were just automated in the past so patience with ourselves if if those first few lessons aren't magic they're not dynamite they're uh, they're quite pain, painful possibly and we have to kind of go back to square one it'll come back because it's all in there what we used to be able to do we'll be able to do again but it may just take a little bit of a little bit of time and the other point that Adele made that I thought was really important was that not every child needs that same thing some childs will be so pleased some children will be so pleased to be back into into school some students will be so pleased to be back into that into that routine and so on and so forth um, and I think my instinct is that that's going to be perhaps the majority of students will, will be glad of that <laughs> far more so than would have said that they would have been whenever schools closed for the first time but as Adele pointed out that won't be true of all students some students will be dreading coming back into school for for many many reasons whether they're scared of, of of getting ill whether they've had some experiences at home that they they don't want to talk about and so on and so forth lots of different reasons so again it goes back to this patience thing and it goes back to the the point that Adele was making all the way through it's it's getting to know trying to figure out the root cause of students actions instead of kind of jumping to conclusions and so on and so forth so so much so much that i've been thinking about as a result of this conversation and and i hope you've been thinking about it too and and perhaps it's given you some ideas i'm sure adele would not mind if you wanted to get in contact i'm on twitter i'll put a link to her a twitter handle in the show notes page and do check out her website as well with those online courses that are available there so all that remains for me to do is to once again thank Adele for giving up her time and being on the show and thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the episode and thank you to Cambridge Assessment this is their third um, episode that they've sponsored and I'm so grateful of uh, so grateful for that it means that yeah I, I can do I can I can kind of justify the hours that I'm putting into into these podcasts with with support like that so I'm really grateful to that and on the same level thank you um, to those Patreon sponsors who've uh, contributed um, it really does mean the world to me um, and a massive thank you to you my lovely loyal listeners for keeping tuning in um, in your thousands to these podcasts I really hope you're finding them useful um, as certainly as useful as I do
do. If you want to support the podcast in a non-monetary way, then the best things you can do are to give this podcast a review wherever you get uh, wherever you get your podcast from, whether it's iTunes, Podbean, or whatever. Just do a review, ideally a good one. And if you want to help spread the word about this podcast, perhaps recommend an episode to a colleague. This would be a great one. This would be a great one, particularly if you have a non-maths colleague who perhaps thinks that this is a maths podcast, and why wouldn't they? It's called the Mr. Martin Maths Podcast. Perhaps this is a good one to, to get the ball rolling. Anyway, I've got some cracking guests lined up um, as we come into the new academic year. So stay tuned for those. But in the meantime, please, please, please take care of yourselves. Stay safe and bye for now. Oh, 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 oh,